Could it be maybe I'm just imagining things? Do I really come second with you? Only you know the answer. Is it me, Joe, or Jim? Must I play second fiddle while you're dancing with them? Hello and welcome to episode 1971 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Not bad. How are you? bad you know you know what's kind of bad <laughs> the u.s rotation for the wbc yeah how about that <laughs> have you looked at this starting staff lately it's mm. uh it's not the greatest <laughs> lost it, it has lost some notable arms of late it certainly has yeah the most recent being clayton kershaw who was disappointed not to be on this team nestor cortez also dropped out due to injury so now you have this six-man rotation on the american wbc team adam wainwright brady singer lance lynn merrill kelly miles michaelis and kyle freeland yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> not the greatest group. And I guess that's really nothing new because often it's trouble to get pitchers to pitch yeah. in, in WBC. I mean, I guess the, the ace for the American team last time around was Marcus Stroman, right? So it's, it's just often tough to get the top arms to participate. But I was curious to see just how this US WBC rotation would stack up to just individual team rotations in yeah. terms of projections for 2023. Obviously, the WBC team doesn't have to play a full season, so it's sort of a silly exercise. But if the US WBC team were just a regular major league team, their rotation would be 11th. just compared to just the other teams. And that's just looking at at the top six pitchers on every team's starting pitcher depth chart. So it would go Yankees, Rangers, Mets, Brewers, Phillies, Braves, Rays, Padres, Angels, Dodgers, and then the American WBC team followed closely by the Giants, the Blue Jays, and the Astros. So it's just, it's not the best. Like, I think Brady Singer has the best projection via the Fangraphs depth charts of any starting pitcher on the American WBC team. And Brady Singer, I believe, has the 30th best starting pitcher projection Hmm. of any pitcher. So that means that there are 29 starting pitchers with better projections, and most of them are American. In fact, there are 24, I believe, American-born pitchers, starting pitchers, with better projections than Brady Singer who is, again, the best projected pitcher on this WBC roster. So the pitchers who have better projections, who are not on this team, DeGrom, Burns, Rodon, Nola, Cole, Wheeler, Scherzer, Bieber, Verlander, Woodruff, McClanahan, Gossman, Freed, Strider, Cease, Webb, Musgrove, Snell, Kershaw, Lodolo, Glasnow, Cobb, Gallen, and Green. A lot of good pitchers there, but none of them on the US WBC roster. And, you know, like a, a a number of them in the Cactus League, right? Who could uh, just go down go down the way to chase for the, the early going and then hop on a flight to Florida after. So, you know, it's yeah, yeah it's <laughs> it's not the best. Now, the hitters on oh, yeah. Team USA. Mm-hmm. Mwah, 
superlative. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, the, the pitching does leave a little something to be desired. But again, yeah, have we talked about the hitting, Ben? You <laughs> the know? hitting is good. Also, I would, I would also just say that if Michael Bauman were on this podcast, he would fight you for besmirching his beloved oh, yes, Lance Lynn. You know, I know he would. <laughs> We've had that fight before. It's a real love. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. true. It's true yeah. love. And it's not just the, the U.S. team that has this issue recruiting right, pitchers because, yeah. uh, you know, you look at the rotations for a lot of the other teams, too, and they're not super strong. I mean, the Dominican roster is is totally stacked, too, with position players, but the starting pitchers, you know, it, it's not deep, really, right. right? You've got Sandy Alcantara, who we're about to talk about, and Christian Javier, but then it's like Rowanzi Contreras and Johnny Cueto, who we're also about to talk about, a teammate of Sandy Alcantara's, right? So it's it's tough. I mean, it's with the American team, like, there are a lot of pitchers like Logan Webb who expressed interest in being on the team at right. a certain point, but then ended up not being on it, and that's also the case with uh, other countries' teams, you know, right. like Luis Castillo and, and other pitchers who, at one point, uh, seemed like they might be interested but then ultimately are not participating and there are various reasons for that with Kershaw evidently and some others also it's an insurance issue seemingly yeah yeah, there's a an LA Times piece about this that I will link to if you're interested in the ins and outs of insurance. But according to this piece, uh, the insurance coverage protects teams from having to pay a player for time missed because of an injury stemming from the tournament. If an injury is determined to have happened in the WBC, then the team is reimbursed for the time the player misses. WBC participants are required to undergo entrance and exit physicals to help glean injury information. And so with a pitcher like Kershaw who has had some chronic injury issues. They just couldn't get coverage, and I guess the Dodgers wouldn't just waive this. Uh, Miguel Cabrera ran into the same issue, but the Tigers were just like, eh, he can go play. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the Dodgers, uh, not so sanguine about Kershaw, I guess. And so there's this concern about injury risk in the WBC, and, and I don't know that there's great evidence for the fact that it makes you more likely to get hurt. Yeah. I studied this uh, back in 2017. I wrote an article about it and didn't really find any compelling evidence to that point that players who had participated in the WBC had suffered greater injury rates. And there was a, another story at the same time that the Wash U Sports Analytics Group did that maybe found some slight effects, but, but nothing glaring. And MLB, for its part, insists that uh, there's nothing to it. According to the LA Times, MLB has compiled injury data from the first four WBC iterations. According to a league official, the data aren't publicly available, but the official maintained there is no correlation between being hurt and playing in the WBC. It's also in MLB's best interest to say that without sharing the data, but sure. it's uh, it's not totally clear that you go pitch in the WBC, you're more likely to get hurt, because of course like you can get hurt in spring training, too. The idea is basically that maybe if you're just more into this tournament and you're throwing more max effort and you're not fully ramped up yet and it's uh, a little more intense and, and perhaps high pressure than a spring training game and so you might be more likely to let it fly and hurt yourself and also you know you're away from your team's training staff and all of that and so perhaps you could be used in a certain way although I think the WBC managers are pretty careful to stick to yeah. whatever the, the prescribed usage is but 
there's just always going to be that concern with a tournament that takes place at this time of year. And there isn't really a better time of year, you know, like if you were to do it after the season, a lot of players wouldn't participate then either. There's just, there's no great time to do it because uh, players will always be worried and teams will always be worried that the guys are going to get hurt. And there's always a risk. (laughs) Anytime you're playing, you could get hurt. Yeah, or, you know, the other option is that teams just aren't patriotic, you know? They don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I'm a rabble rouser. I'm a rouser of rabbles. Right. I mean, you see people say that, like Jerry Manuel, who is the bench coach for the U.S. team, yeah. said in a, a Ken Rosenthal piece a few weeks ago, I thought people would break their necks to play for their country. Yeah. You go to the other countries and they're begging to play. And that's not necessarily true, I don't think. They have issues recruiting pitchers, too. But again, like... And for the same reasons, right? It's the same entities being like, hey, no. Yeah, Yeah, it, it, It is funny that teams seem to be... Not that they want to be clear. To be clear. Not that they want their guys to get hurt when they're pitching for them. But there is sort of a a seeming acceptance of of the risk when it is in service of the club but when it comes to other entities they're like no mm-hmm. no thank you no thank yeah, you right yeah because it's just if you get hurt in your own team's camp then i guess it's well what are we going to do right. injuries are inevitable but if you get hurt in a, pitching in the wbc then your team and your team's fans are always going to think well would that have happened if right. they hadn't been there and so even though you're going to get some number of injuries regardless like if it happens there then the there's always the what if right. and you kind of, you know, regret or you might have regrets and it's sort of silly, but inevitable. So really it, it's other teams too. I mentioned Luis Castillo from Valdez is right. another one for the Dominican Republic who at one point was slated to pitch for them and then ultimately didn't. And, and with Valdez and with Castillo, like sometimes it, it's framed as like a mutual decision, like yeah. the, the, the team and the player kind of came to this decision together. And so you always wonder, like, how heavily is the team leaning on the player not to participate, right? I mean, MLB tells the teams, like, we, we want players to participate. It's for the good of the tournament and the sport. But you kind of wonder what gets said. Like, they, they can't say you can't play unless, I guess, you were on the 60-man the IL maybe the previous sure. season. But you just you kind of wonder. And, and players, you know, like, they've got money at stake and contracts right. and walk years and everything. And right. so— you can totally understand why players wouldn't participate. I'm I'm definitely not knocking anyone who doesn't. Oh, yeah. It just it slightly saps my enthusiasm sure. for the tournament, I guess, when when good players don't play, particularly good pitchers. I just, you know, it's such a um it's such a strange job, Ben, pitching, mm-hmm. you know, cuz like you got to do it at least some to avoid getting hurt. Yes. But if you do it too much, <laughs> You know, it can really backfire on you. So what a difficult, (laughs) what a difficult uh, needle to thread. Yes, it can be quite hazardous to your health. And yeah, breaking news. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And it seems like the strategy more and more is just like pitch less, pitch fewer innings, and, right. and that'll help. And uh, ultimately, it, it doesn't really. I mean, right. maybe it, it helps some guys, but then other guys, yeah, maybe they don't pitch enough. Or right. maybe they're pitching fewer innings, but they're all max effort innings. And maybe that's just as bad for you, if not worse. So Conundrum. <laughs> Yeah, we'll do a a WBC preview of some sort, I think, before the tournament starts. And so I don't want to dampen anyone's enthusiasm because there's still a lot to be excited about. I'm I'm looking forward to it. But I think the absence of elite pitching on a lot of teams – 
that just makes me more psyched for for Team Japan because the Japanese yeah. team's pitching is so good, yeah. and especially in the starting rotation where you have Otani and Darvish, yep. and then you have Sasaki and Yamamoto. I mean, <laughs> those those might be like those might be like the four best pitchers in the tournament. I yeah. I don't know. I'd I'd have to survey all the other rosters, which I haven't that carefully, but I. I might take any of those four guys yeah. over any of the the American pitchers. <laughs> so yeah, it's that pretty, is just it's a pretty a, amazing group. Yeah, that is nasty. I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing those guys. And I guess we should say, like you know, bullpens probably matter a lot too when sure. it comes to a tournament like this. Starters aren't stretched out at this point anyway, and you don't care as much about like innings and durability. So there's some good bullpen arms on the American team and other rosters too. So so that makes up for it somewhat. But it's tough. Uh, everyone's protective of their pitching and pitchers are protective of themselves. And I wish there were some way that they could all feel confident about participating. But I think this is inevitable and understandable. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a preview pod for you all today. We're going to talk about Christian Yelich's two teams, I guess. I, I always try to come up with some way to... How about that? Yeah. What a nice little unifying theme. <laughs> yeah. There's not always a, a neat little theme, but we're going to talk about the Milwaukee Brewers, and then we're going to talk about the Miami Marlins. So yeah. we'll be talking to Todd Rosiak about the Brewers and Jordan McPherson about the Marlins in just a moment. There have been some, uh, some finance updates yeah. uh, you want to talk talk finances for a moment sure but before we do that i remembered mm -hmm. the other thing i wanted to talk to you about oh then. sure okay did you watch any college baseball this weekend you'll be shocked to learn that i did not <laughs> i watched some college baseball this weekend i watched some college baseball in person but i'm not going to talk about the college baseball of it all i am going to make you talk about college baseball at some point ben because <laughs> i don't know if you know this but michael bauman works for Fangraphs now i do know he that, and i've yes. been messaging about college baseball just all weekend it's nice mm -hmm. but i uh i went to a game it was the desert invitational down here in arizona this weekend mm -hmm. so i got to watch tennessee play arizona and I will spare you, even though I, I got to see a guy who's probably going to go in the top five to ten picks. Uh, you know, like if you want to take a peek at Eric Longenhagen's updated uh, draft rankings for the 2023 class, they dropped on Friday. Mm -hmm. Sort of a nice little lead in to Prospect Week, which mm -hmm. kicks off in earnest tomorrow. I got to see uh, Chase Salander pitch for Tennessee. But you know who else was there, Ben? Taking Ooh. it in. You ready? Yes. Juan Soto. Howie yeah. Kendrick. And Jan Gomes took in oh. a college baseball game together. <laughs> what a nice so, little trio. <laughs> it was so nice. And then people noticed that Juan Soto was there, and I think it got less fun for him after that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's hard for him to remain anonymous at a baseball game of any kind. Yeah, he, you know, Salt River Field is in a big facility, and you get to see a lot of people's faces there. And he was recognized, and I think he did a little stand-up for MLB Network because they were broadcasting the tournament. So that was that was nice of him. Colton Wong did the same when GCU played Tennessee. Tennessee starting 0-2, Ben. 0-2 as of mm. yesterday. I don't know what their results concerning. have been today. It is concerning. There, Anyway, we're not doing that part. But here's what happened. They watched some of the game. And it was a cold night. They they stayed for most of it. Uh, Jan Gomes departed first, as I as I noticed, and he got asked for like an autograph and a selfie or two, and he obliged. Nice guy that he is. And then and then Juan Soto tried to leave, and like the Pied Piper, just a trail of autograph seekers following behind him, and he. You know, he obliged for a while, but then after that, it, he, it's like he's got to go. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in the section 
not immediately behind the home plate, but the section behind that. And so I got to watch him, you know, exit down along the, the, the first baseline, walk up the stairs toward the Rockies facility, hang a left as if to go out the center field gate to go to his car. And that group of people just followed and followed and <laughs> fo- they followed him up the stairs. They made the left. And then eventually they dispersed. And there was a Salt River uh, Fields like security person with him so that he, you know, wasn't mm-hmm. like overwhelmed by the mm-hmm. mob of autograph seekers. But it just made me think, I don't want to be famous, really, you know? <laughs> like, we are, um, we're not famous. We are known in a very niche kind of way. Yeah, you weren't mobbed by Effectively Wild listeners? No, no. You know why? Because <laughs> our listeners, they're awesome. Mm-hmm. Even if even if I were to be recognized as a park, which I don't think would happen very often, I think our listeners, you know, the couple of times that I have been approached by someone, they've just been very respectful and mm-hmm. uh, said hey and then moved on, you know, yep. been mindful of my time and boundaries. And it's been, you know, to aces just across the board. Mm-hmm. The autograph seekers, they are a determined and persistent lot, though. So <laughs> yes, there's yes. that. Yeah. When I used to go to spring trading as a kid, just as a fan, I was always uh, apprehensive about doing the autograph thing. I, it's like part of me wanted them, but I just I didn't want to bother the players yeah. <laughs> that much. I mean, they're used to it, obviously. And, yeah. and if you're a kid, it's OK. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would get surrounded by by sweaty adult autograph seekers who yeah. are, you know, trying to complete a collection yes. or something. And uh, players are maybe a little less sympathetic to them and receptive yeah. to them. So that sometimes the grownups will like put kids up to getting yes. autographs for, for them. Yes. Um, and sometimes players will will sniff that out. Yes. And be like, stop it. And yes. That's uh, that's fine. But yeah, I I just I like kind of the proximity to the players as yeah. a kid. But I don't know. I like I don't necessarily want to hound them for autographs. So they're going to get hounded anyway. And and then you have the autograph. And unless you're you're getting it to sell it, I, I've just never been like a big autograph collector kind of person yeah especially I, I guess getting the autograph at least then you have the memory of the experience of like tossing the ball to the player and the player handing the ball back to you so at least there was kind of a personal connection whereas if you're just purchasing an autographed thing that you didn't even see get signed or anything then right. it's, uh, it's it's sort of abstract and antiseptic in my mind so I was always like warring with myself about yeah. do I do I want to do this because uh, you know I was kind of shy and and it's skittish about doing it and didn't want to be a bother and just kind of wanted to to bask in in being close to the baseball players without bothering them even yeah. though they consider it you know part of the responsibility of the job to some extent well and i would imagine that you know as much as i i want to try to frame this in a way that doesn't sound judgmental like <laughs> you know when i think about where i would perceive the boundaries around this stuff to be maybe that's a more neutral way of describing it like you know, at the spring training facility when a guy is playing, like, then he's at work. And part of his work is, to a certain extent, engaging with fans. And, you know, I think I should get to decide how much they do that uh, on an individual basis. But it's, like, understood within the context, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have a guy at a at a game where he's not playing. And it's like, well, where does the boundary sit? Because I'm sure that Juan Soto knew he was going to be recognized when he went to literally a baseball game, you know? Mm-hmm. And I imagine that baseball players 
have it pretty good actually when it comes to uh being recognized like i bet yes. they get to enjoy a comfortable amount of anonymity most of the time and and probably guys like Juan Soto less than than others but still a fair amount like out and about getting gas you know or at the grocery mm-hmm. store or what have you but yeah i wonder you know and they seemed like they had a nice time it was nice to see i was like oh that nationals team must have really liked each other how nice you know yeah mm-hmm. it was a nice it was a nice thing to to see and then i got to reminisce about like howie kendrick and doing the celebration and the dugout the year that they won the world series like you know i was like ah, oh, that's nice <laughs> i i really like it this happens a fair amount in the valley where you'll be at an amateur event or you'll be you know at the fall league or whatever and you'll look around and you'll see you know you'll see big leaguers there because they're in town to see a guy they know or to just take it in you know you can tell they just really like baseball and so i always enjoy that but it is weird when they get recognized because you're like no leave him alone yeah Zach Greinke went to the 18-inning Mariners-Astros game that you were at last yeah. October, and he did not get recognized there. Yeah. <laughs> he was just uh, wearing a, a like Bass Pro sweatshirt and a fishing hat, and yeah. his wife put on Instagram that he was just like under the radar all day, <laughs> so yeah. it's possible. It's I possible. Guess. Yeah, and I'm sure he was happy not to be recognized. Anyway, I didn't tell you we were going to talk about that, but I yeah. I wanted to share. I, I felt the need to bring college baseball in, even though I wasn't going to make you talk about it specifically. That's okay. I'll allow it. You did tell me that we were going to talk about John Angelos, which is never good news. I just feel like, look, you know, among the things one assumes an owner of a team, particularly one who's like, you know, the president CEO of the club, you just imagine like, you're going to have a lot to say about payroll, but John Angelus is here to tell you that despite being the Orioles CEO and chairman, maybe not so much, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, he uh, he talked about the Orioles spending or, or lack thereof, and he said the Orioles won't have a payroll that is comparable to the Mets and the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Yankees. He said that's not an Oriole thing. That's a small middle market team thing. And as many people pointed out, the Orioles' media market is uh, roughly equivalent to the Padres' media yeah. market. <laughs> it's uh, This is why owners resent the Padres, I think, because uh, all of them are like, well, we couldn't possibly run a payroll like that in this market. Right. The obvious counter is always, uh, what about the Padres? <laughs> right. They don't want to get that question. But no. he uh, he talked a little bit about could payroll be double or triple what it is, or could it be over $100 million? Yeah. We're not there yet. And he said, we have a very young team that's overachieved and overperformed because of the great work of our baseball folks. It's not my job to predict payroll. My job is to make sure that the community partnerships are sustained. And I think all of that comes after that. So he's essentially saying that that they could afford for the payroll to be double or triple of what it is or over 100 million, but that they're not there yet. And it's uh, not his fault because uh, he didn't make the decision, even though he is the person who ultimately decides what the Orioles will spend. It's just such a goofy quote, you know, like it's a lot of things. We could use a lot of adjectives to describe it, but apart from anything else, it's just deeply goofy, you know, because again, it's not his one job. But it is arguably the most important part of his job when it comes to what you're going to see on the field. And it's like, you know what's a good way to get to wherever there is? It's to sign some good free agents. It's not the Mm -hmm. only mechanism to do that. And I think that 
the Orioles, particularly in their current version, have shown themselves to be very good at some of the other stuff that bolsters payroll, right? And that mm-hmm. really makes that money make sense to spend. But they've done that now, you know? And they've got a good, good farm system. They've got yeah. good guys, good young guys on their big league roster. And I also would like it, and maybe this is something that we should all collaborate to do as a baseball media. I feel like people have a really bad sense of like what media market sizes are, especially now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not surprised to hear that Baltimore and San Diego are the same size, like from a media market perspective. But like, I bet people would be really shocked to learn how big the Phoenix metro area is mm-hmm. these days. Did you know that? Ben, did you know that the Phoenix metro area is like the fifth biggest metro area in the United States? Well, not exactly. Yeah. Doesn't that kind of change the way you think about like the Diamondbacks and what they might be able to do if they were really good? Now, sports in the Valley are weird and people have like a a, a very sometimes loose relationship with them from a fandom perspective, I think, because there are a lot of transplants here, she says, speaking from experience. But (laughs) I don't know. It's just a it's I've been thinking about that. It's like when people say, oh, it's a a mid-market club. I'm like, is it in 2023? Like, is it a mid-market club or is that like actually a very big market now or a smaller market Mm -hmm. that I'm than I'm appreciating because, you know, populations move around. So anyway, that's not the main point of it. I think that if we were to take these comments in a in a literal way, they would actually be very concerning. <laughs> like <laughs> if we were to believe him that it isn't his job to predict payroll, it's like, well, that's a problem because I think your front office is relying on you to tell them what they can spend. Right. Yeah. I mean, if he's trying to say he's he's not meddling in the baseball side of things sure. and, and that he's taking Terrific. recommendations from his baseball people, good. Awesome. You know, that's that's what uh, you want owners to do for the most part. But ultimately the owner does give the baseball operations people a budget, right? Yes. And so if uh, he said, you know, we could spend double or triple what we're spending now, I'd like to think that Michael Elias and co would have spent up toward that limit, right? Now, I guess there's some question about that, which is uh, sure. one thing I asked Evan Drellick about when we talked right. to him last week, talked to him about his book, Winning Fixes Everything, where he was reporting that the Astros' former executives, including some of the ones who were running the Orioles now, you know, they didn't really like to go outside the organization to spend. They preferred to do everything internally, and, and it, it was like, you know— going out to get a free agent that was like beneath them or something like it, it they wanted to have uh, young cost controlled homegrown players and the Orioles certainly have that yeah and and the Astros have had that and and they've spent perhaps not as much as they could have spent at times too obviously they've been extremely successful regardless but the Orioles have not yet and they might be able to without spending a lot because they do have such a, a good young core it seems like but It certainly couldn't hurt, especially in that division, to be supplementing those homegrown guys with free agents and and spending. And so, I don't know, like maybe the Orioles executives aren't going and kind of banging the drum and saying we need to be spending more. So I don't know whether it's uh, partly them not pushing Angelos or whether it's Angelos not giving them more leash. I I don't know. Maybe it's a a team effort, but you would hope that that they would spend. And and it seems like they're at the point where 
they should be now, right? Like, they're good enough now that they're legitimate wildcard contenders. Like, it's a, a tough assignment for them in the East, and I know the projections are, are not as strong as some other contending teams, but if they had had a bigger offseason and, and brought in some some marquee guys, then you could be having that conversation now. It's not too soon to, to spend for them, I don't think. Did you know that Adley Rutschman projects for 5.2 war? <laughs> He's really good. <laughs> he projects for 5.2 war per our depth charts. His zips projection is for six wins, basically. 5.8. Like, you have a you have a Adley Rutschman, you know? Yeah. You have mm-hmm. an Adley Rutschman who still has to frame pitches. So, like, I don't know, maybe go get some guys. Mm-hmm. An idea. Yep. We also got some grief for talking about 2020 and how the Orioles were in a rebuild. So he said that was just good luck, really, in that sense, to not have a lot of payroll out there. Teams that had a lot of payroll and that were relying on live attendance to pay for that were in a much worse situation. We were much better situated. Just lucky, really. He was trying to say that the Orioles weren't spending a lot of money on players at that point and no one was going to their games anyway. So they didn't suffer as much financially from the loss of attendance as some other teams did. But it tends not to come off so well when you're talking about being really lucky about the timing of the pandemic. Yeah. And this uh, comes against the backdrop. Uh, Speaking of our friend Evan, he just wrote for The Athletic and reported about the creation of a new committee and economic reform committee that MLB has formed, the commissioner's office. And uh, there's the Dodgers chairman on there and the Tigers uh, chairman, Chris Illich, and John Henry, Red Sox owner, and of course, Dick Monfort, (laughs) Rockies owner in the mix as usual. And uh, this seems like a group that is sort of strategizing in advance of the CBA expiring, which isn't going to happen for quite some time, not until after the 2026 season. But That and the bankruptcy of the Diamond Sports Group and the uncertainty about TV distribution and how that's going to affect team finances and then ongoing concern about uh, the Padres spending and Steve Cohen and the Mets spending and disparities in payrolls. And it sounds like they're sort of laying the groundwork for some kind of salary cap proposal, which it always seems like anything involving a salary cap would be a non-starter for the Players Association. So I don't know whether there's any future in that, but there's some talk about a cap or possibly a, a minimum or some combination of the two. So they're they're strategizing. They're trying to figure out their way forward here. And I don't know whether that uh, has any bearing on the kind of comments that Angelus is making here, but it's the same refrain that we've heard over and over again from owners talking about how their team can't afford to do what other teams can. And, and there's certainly like some morsel of truth to that at the extremes, but also most teams are not really testing their limits at this point, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of teams would like you to believe they're the A's, and they're not. And mm-hmm. not every team. I know, like, John Middleton had, had some yeah. great quotes. He had a great mm-hmm. quote. Did you see mm-hmm. this quote from John Middleton? I did. That was I a good have it quote. in front of me, but we should read I it. do. Do you want me to read okay. it? Yeah, please do. How much money did the 27 Yankees make, or the 29 A's, or the 75 to 76 Big Red Machine, Middleton said. Does anybody know? Does anybody care? Nobody knows or cares whether any of them made any money or not, and nobody cares about whether I make money or not. If my legacy is that I didn't lose any money owning a baseball team on an annual operating basis, that's a pretty sad legacy. It's about putting trophies in the cases. Pretty good. Pretty good. And so, you know, and they have actually spent in a way that 
suggests that this is not just him, you know, blowing smoke, right? And so I think that there are countervailing forces within the industry where teams either are willing to spend really regularly or even if, you know, they're a really big payroll team that can dip below the luxury tax threshold to reset, they do that with an eye toward future spending, right? So that does exist, but this kind of tension within the ownership core, right, in some respects, I think is healthy because it suggests that there are still people who want to spend money to win. <laughs> if they were totally <laughs> united, I, I would imagine it would go in the other direction. But it doesn't suggest that like we're going to have a, a stress-free time come the next CBA negotiation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Let me give you a, a quick stat blast. This week's stat blast This stat blast is prompted by a question from listener Dennis, who wrote in to say, Who is the best baseball player who was never the best on his own team? Mm. Put another way, who is the Scottie Pippen of baseball? Mm. (laughs) uh, Scottie Pippen, maybe he was the best when Jordan was playing baseball. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. Maybe he was the best at some point. But famously, one of the best basketball players ever and yet was playing with uh, one of the two best basketball players ever and thus was seen as something of a sidekick. So the baseball version of that. Ryan Nelson, frequent stat blast consultant, tackled this one. You can find him on Twitter at rsnelson23. And I think there is a pretty clear answer here. Hall of Famer Tom Glavin, Mm. I believe. I believe he is probably the best baseball player never to have been the best player on his team. He never led any of his teams in Fancraft's war. So just starting the beginning with the Braves, I mean, it was Dale Murphy, Rick Mahler, Lonnie Smith, Ron Gant, Terry Pendleton, David Justice, Pendleton again, and then Maddox, 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 Smoltz, Maddox, Maddox, and then Chipper, and then Andrew Jones, and then Maddox again, and then Andrew Jones, and then Glavin went to the Mets, and he was never the best player by Fangraphs were in the Mets either. 2003, the the leading Fangraphs war guy in the 2003 Mets was Jay Wong So. Hmm. <laughs> that was not a very good team. And <laughs> <laughs> Mike Cameron, then the year after that, and then Pedro Martinez, and then Carlos Beltran, and then David Wright. So Tom Clavin put together a Hall of Fame career, 73 career war, without ever being the leading war guy on his team. And I think he's a, a great answer because whenever you talk about those 90s Braves teams, it, it's usually like Maddox and Glavin, right? The way that it's Jordan and Pippen, right? You never really list Glavin first, even though he's a great pitcher in his own right. Now, Glavin was the best pitcher on his team a few times in 1991, 2004, and 2006. So if we want the best player who was never even the best hitter or pitcher on his team, if he was a a hitter, he was never the best hitter. If he was a pitcher, he was never the best pitcher. Then that would be Bill Dickey. Mm. 
Bill Dickey, also a Hall of Famer, 56 Fangraphs war, but was never the best hitter or position player on the Yankees because uh, he just so happened to play on teams with guys named Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Joe DiMaggio <laughs> and others. So tough competition there for Bill Dickey, a very good player, but uh, he was outward by Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio and Joe Gordon, also a Hall of Famer, and Charlie Keller. And then during World War II, was Snuffy Sternweiss, <laughs> you know, he, he was never number one. Right. So Bill Dickey would be the best answer there. So Leading war totals among players who were never the best player on their team. Glavin, again, number one. Then Eddie Plank, who was on all those good Connie Mack A's teams in the early 1900s with Rube Waddell and Nap Lajoie and Eddie Collins and Home Run Baker and other great players. Early win, Juan Marichal, Jake Beckley, David Wells, Bill Dickey, Luis Gonzalez, Kurt Simmons, Willie Davis. I could go on, but I will link to the spreadsheet if you're interested. And then leading war totals among players who were never the best pitcher or batter on their team, depending on which group they were in. Dickey, as mentioned at the top, and then Gabby Hartnett, Tommy Leach, Mickey Cochran, Tony Lazeri, another Yankee, Jimmy Ryan, Travis Jackson, Tony Fernandez, Al Oliver, Omar Vizquel, Ben Chapman, Gil Hodges, could go on, but I won't. And uh, Steven Strasburg is a, a recent example, fairly high on that list of never the best pitcher on your team if you were a pitcher. Brett Gardner, also fairly high on the list, never the best batter on your team if you were a batter. Mariano Rivera is also on that list as a pitcher. It's just mm. hard to be your, your yeah. leading war guy as a reliever. But yeah, Tends Steven, to indicate something else is very wrong. <laughs> yeah. Steven Strasburg was a teammate's leading pitcher war guy on his teams. It was uh, LaVon Hernandez, Jordan Zimmerman, Gio Gonzalez, Zimmerman again, Zimmerman again, Max Scherzer for several years. And then Hunter Harvey last year was the leading Nationals war pitcher, which, again, not a great sign and not a great team. But Strasburg, uh, it would be... I wonder if he pitched at all anymore, but he put together quite a successful career without ever being the leading war pitcher on his team. And then finally, I asked Ryan, just for the guys with the most second fiddle seasons, even if at one point they had a first fiddle season, and I asked for that specifically because I was wondering about Lou Gehrig, because I, I figured Lou Gehrig must have been the best Yankee at some point, and he was, but also had a whole lot of runner-up seasons. So Lou Gehrig is tied with Eddie Plank for the most second fiddle seasons. They had eight seasons of being the second most valuable on their team, followed by Eddie Matthews, Ty Cobb, and Del Pratt with seven and then Steve Carlton, Jim Edmonds, Jeff Bagwell, Bobby Wallace, Harry Stovey, John Smoltz, again, Yogi Berra, Dwayne Murphy, Jesse Burkett, Robin Ventura, Miguel Cabrera, Craig Nettles, and Manny Ramirez all had six also. So no shame in being second if uh, you happen to be teammates with some other legend, yeah. but those would be the best candidates for the Scotty Pippen of baseball. There you go. All right, so let's get to our previews here. And it strikes me, I was thinking this, and and I saw one of our listeners in the Discord group mention this too. We are now onto our, I think, ninth and 10th teams in this preview. We've got two NL teams today, but thus far of the eight previews we've done, seven have been American League teams. So it's been very AL-centric so far. 
And I was thinking about whether that means anything. Anything, yeah. Yeah, we're just going by projections here and we're starting from the middle out, going from the more middling teams to the best and worst teams. But I think that sort of speaks to the distribution of of win totals across the leagues. Like if I look at the Fangrass playoff odds page, the AL... The high team in terms of projected wins is the Yankees at 89.9, and the low is the A's at 68.2. So that's a range of just over 20 wins from lowest projected win total to highest. In the NL, it's much wider. So the Braves have the highest win total projection at 94.6, and the Rockies are at the bottom at 65. So that's a range of of almost exactly 30 wins. So there's a, a bigger gap between the best and worst in the NL. And I think there's just more compression just generally in the AL. I guess you could say more mediocrity, but just, you know, the AL Central, the AL West, like there's just uh, not like that many elite teams in that mix, you know, other than the Astros, I guess. There's just uh, a lot of teams that are kind of, eh, kind of in the middle. And then in the AL East, I I guess all of those teams are pretty good. And so they depress each other's win totals by playing against each other. So you do end up with just more variation, I I guess, a greater standard deviation and and range in the NL for what it's worth. You know, doesn't necessarily say anything about the the respective leagues but i guess it's just you know a little bit of a different distribution in team talent this year i think that's uh, what it suggests i think that that's right all right well we'll take a quick break now and we'll be back in just a moment with todd rosiak of the milwaukee journal sentinel to talk about the brewers who have a projection of 85.9 wins followed by jordan mcpherson of the miami herald to talk about the miami marlins projected to win 79.7 games and yes you can feel free to round up to 86 and 80 respectively are back and we're joined now by Todd Rosiak, who covers the Milwaukee Brewers for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. So we've already had some headlines out of Brewers camp, so I guess we can start with those. Corbin Burns came out and was displeased, not only with losing his arbitration case with the Brewers, but also with some of the arguments that were made by Milwaukee in the room. He talked about how it hurt his relationship with the team. So tell us a little bit about this. Obviously, the Brewers are not the first team to take a young or star player to arbitration and risk engendering some bad blood over not a huge amount of money. But is this something that Brewers fans should be concerned about when it comes to Burns specifically, who's free agent eligible after next season? And is this in any way part of a pattern in how the Brewers are treating players or spending on players? I'll start with that one first, and it's and it's not a pattern. Uh, they they do not like going to hearings, and they try to avoid them if at all possible. Uh, they had one last year with Adrian Hauser, which they won. It was a much lower profile case, of course. A uh, year before that, they they went to uh, a year ago or, or year before that, two years before. I can't remember, but 
Josh Hader, that one was a little acrimonious and that Hader was upset because he felt like he should have been paid as a pure closer, whereas the Brewers were utilizing him more in multi-inning roles at that point. So from that point forward, that's what the Brewers did, is used him specifically as a closer. And of course, his salaries jumped as a result of that. But as far as Corbin Burns' case goes, I think we have to step back and take a look at kind of from the macro level. And the the reality of the situation is that the Brewers are not going to be able to afford to keep Corbin Burns no matter what happens, uh, unless all of a sudden Mark Adonazio hits it big in Vegas or something and it all of a sudden infuses a bunch of cash into the team. Uh, you know, this is a guy that if he continues to pitch the way he's been pitching and stays healthy is probably going to command north of $300 million on the open market. And there's literally no way that Corbin Burns would you know, pass up an opportunity to cash in on that kind of deal. And he's also a West Coast guy from California. I think he, he ultimately has eyes on landing somewhere in California if he can. So that being said, the, you know, the Brewers did try to try to meet him halfway, I guess you could say, beforehand and didn't, didn't work out. And Corbin Burns went into that room, and I don't, I don't know if his agents didn't uh, adequately prepare him for what he was going to hear, but he, he certainly did not take what he heard uh, very well, as, as everybody uh, learned. But uh, the, the the bottom line is, you know, there was some acrimony for sure, um, some hurt feelings, and I and I think on both sides, even though the Brewers can't, you know, really necessarily come out and say so, I definitely think that they were a little taken aback by. Uh, the strength of what Corbin Burns had to say. And I think if, you know, they, they were really in a position to do so, they would actually um, have a counter to some of the things that Corbin Burns claimed. But you're never going to win that battle in the case of public opinion. So, you know, a couple of days passed and, and yesterday I was told that the two sides sat down and now wouldn't even really say hashed it out. But I think they just kind of agreed to let it let bygones be bygones, uh, make it water under the bridge, and uh, agree to move forward from here without any any more uh, drama, and, and left it at that. So I, I think that's kind of where it stands, and where it goes from here, it's, it's anybody's guess. You know, do the, the Brewers get off to a bad start this year, fall out of the race? Do they look to trade him at the trade deadline? If they're competitive, obviously I think they keep him. What if they're competitive going, you know, they get a resurgent year from Christian Yelich, let's say, uh, and, you know, Brandon Woodruff pitches lights out. Devin Williams is great as a closer again, and they, they their competitive window is still open for 2024. Do you hang on to him and then risk losing him for nothing? It's a lot of, a lot of big decisions to be made, not only about him, but also Woodruff and Willie Adamas too. But, you know, as far as Matt Arnold goes, he's going to have a lot of interesting decisions to make over the next couple seasons and um, really kind of franchise, potentially franchise altering decisions as well. So that's, I guess that's why he gets paid the big bucks. Yeah, I was uh, trying to figure, I mean, arbitration, it, it can be an awkward, if not nasty process, which is uh, why people prefer to avoid it oftentimes. But the one thing Burns said was uh, that the Brewers had argued in some way that he was the reason they missed the playoffs last yeah. year. Now, that's one side of the story, and we don't know exactly how that was framed. And he did stipulate that the Brewers didn't attack him in any personal way. But I was trying to come up with uh, how you could even 
make an argument that Corbin Burns was the reason that the Brewers didn't make the playoffs because, you know, he was their best pitcher, obviously. So it seems like uh, it would be tough to torture the stats in such a way that he would look like the culprit there. I mean, I was looking at, you know, win probability added and championship win probability added. And could you come up with some kind of clutch based argument? And I don't think so. If you look at how he pitched against individual teams, I mean, he was great against the Cardinals. I, I guess you could say he wasn't at his best against the Padres or the Phillies, maybe. Or if it just came down to them arguing, well, he didn't win the Cy Young again and we missed the playoffs by one game. So if he had had another Cy Young season, then maybe mm-hmm. we would have, you know, that's it seems like a tough argument to make especially because he's still an all-star who's getting Cy Young votes right so I don't know I'd love to hear what it was exactly that the Brewers argued because it it seems like it would be a tough argument to make yeah I I have it on pretty good authority that you know that that argument that claim from Burns wasn't really uh, it was kind of disingenuous maybe my guess is that you know the Brewers did what any team would do in a hearing, and you know they they break it down six ways from Sunday on on why, you know why they shouldn't be paying the player what the player wants, and you know educated guess would be that you know he heard them uh, talk about you know his his ERA over the last six weeks was six point seven five, or you know he struggled down the stretch against the Cubs and the Pirates. He did not pitch particularly well against kind of the lesser lights in the division. You know, so I don't think there's any way possible that any team could have any kind of uh, validity or, uh, you know, that argument would hold any water that he was, you know, he was the reason for holding them back from the postseason. I do know that that Corbin Burns has a pretty good pulse on kind of where the franchise is in in the fans' eyes since the hater trade, and that's to say not in a really good place. Uh, you know, you start with the unpopular trade of – Josh Hader to the Padres, you go, which was looked at as almost exclusively a cost-cutting move by the fans, and then you move into the offseason and you've got the Brewers really barely spending any money in the free agent market, uh, mm-hmm. bringing bringing on Wade Miley, um, Brian Anderson, really the two you know the two only notable additions. Uh, for not much money, and then you come into camp, and the the storyline coming into camp was. Uh, you know the brewers are are seeking hundreds of millions of dollars of public tax money now to right. help upgrade the ballpark and then you, you know so you've got the fan base pretty riled up as it is and then you throw this into the into this this chum into the water <laughs> and the sharks certainly uh, attacked so B- burns knew what he was doing i think it was very calculated uh, you know, he knew the sentiment would be behind him, and and it certainly was, <laughs> based on all the uh, the social media that I read. Uh, you know, fans are really irate with this organization, and in particular the owner, which uh, is amazing to me um, as, as somebody who grew up in Milwaukee and Wisconsin in the in the eighties and nineties, remembering all the the lost seasons where the Brewers had no money and spent nothing and just spun their wheels and were really bad. You know, uh, missing the playoffs for the first time in five years last year, like they did. You know, it it, it sent sent the fans kind of into a tailspin, and it was an ugly finish to the season. But I think the fans kind of need to gain a little perspective as to, <laughs> as to what they're dealing with with the Brewers, which has been a, a team, a, a small market team that has punched above its weight class, and in no small uh, part due to Mark Adonazio's willingness to spend beyond a small market team's means. So 
Uh, we'll see where it goes from here. You know, if the Brewers get off to a good start, uh, they started 32 and 18 last season, the best 50 game start in team history. And, you know, it was all uh, rainbows and sunshine. You know, maybe another start like that this season will help kind of put some of that ill will to rest. I want to talk about Burns as a pitcher and some of those moves you mentioned, but I think before we do any of that, we should probably focus on one of the other names in your last answer, which is Matt Arnold. I think a lot of people were surprised at the end of October last year when David Stearns announced he was stepping away and was taking on an advisory role but wouldn't be serving as the president of baseball ops anymore. What what change has that sort of made in the front office? What have you observed about the early part of the Matt Arnold era that we might see informed decisions that the team makes going forward? Uh, I think by and large, Matt Arnold has followed the same path, I think, that David Stearns would have followed if he remained in that role, meaning heavy emphasis on on analytics, you know, listening to their baseball ops people, uh, you know, making moves that aren't necessarily going to excite a lot of people in a lot of areas. You know, they have, they have a very specific prototype for what they're looking for in pitchers, for instance, and they, they love ground ball guys. So they, you know, they, they spent the, the winter picking up guys uh, that, that induced those uh, both in the bullpen and lengthening out their uh, starting pitching depth. So from that perspective, not much has changed as far as uh, – kind of the way Matt Arnold approaches the job. He's definitely more visible, I think a little bit a little bit more comfortable in the public eye. You know, David Stearns was, I wouldn't call him reclusive, but was not visible around that much, uh, was not available to us as much as Matt Arnold has been. And, and, you know, it's not to say that it's not been a transition for the Brewers or for Matt, you know, going from being, Robin to Stearns as Batman for all those years here, uh, you know, that allowed him to kind of fly under the radar, sure. so to speak. But now that he is the man and he's sitting in the chair and, you know, he's the one who's getting the phone call, the phone calls from Mark Adonazio, uh, you know, it's certainly it's uh, it, it's been a change for him. But as far as the way he deals with us and, and our accessibility to him and uh, him you know, doing his best to explain why the team is doing what it's doing. He, he's been great in that regard. And it's been it's been nice to, uh, you know, kind of let that relationship blossom uh, between between media and Matt, because he, he really is a good guy. And that's not to say that David wasn't. David also is a great guy, uh, just went about his job publicly in a very different way. When Stern stepped down, there was some speculation that maybe he was just biding his time for some other bigger market team job to open up, which hasn't happened thus far. So is there any more clarity on what went into his decision? Is this the rare case of someone who says, I'm stepping down to spend more time with my family, where that's the actual explanation? Yeah, I do think that played a big role in it, honestly. After that news conference that the Brewers held, I believe it was uh, later in October, uh, or maybe it was early November. I can't remember now. But uh, when they announced that he was stepping down, you know, after the after the event, you go and you, you speak and you know, thanks for the time and you know all that kind of stuff. And and just talking to David, he, he I mean, it really seemed genuine that he was he he needed to take a step back because running a baseball franchise is literally a twenty four seven three sixty five job and. He's a, you know, I don't, I don't think he's even turned forty yet. He's got a, a, a wife and two young children. You know, his his wife 
is not from the Milwaukee area. Obviously, David isn't either. So I think that he really did feel a need to kind of disengage a little bit and take a step back and kind of smell the roses, so to speak. Yeah, there was a lot of lot of talk about the New York Mets pursuing David Stearns over the previous couple years, and the drum beats didn't really die down after after uh, David announced his step back. But he is under contract to the Brewers through, we believe, um, the end of this coming se- the season here. So, um, you know, if the Mets felt strongly enough, they they could, you know, potentially approach the Brewers if they haven't already and, and try to make some sort of deal uh, to, for David to be let out of his contract early. We don't know that that's happened yet. It may be the the Mets just are content to sit and wait and let his contract run out, and and when that happens, then they'll be free to negotiate with him, and maybe he'll want to go back. I thought for sure that that the Houston opening made a lot of sense for David Stearns, um, mm-hmm. but obviously that's been filled. Perhaps the the Mets' job is still a reality for him or a possibility for him. This is a guy that grew up in New York. He was a huge Mets fan as a youngster. You know what? What? Who wouldn't want to? fulfill a, a childhood dream of, you know, running a franchise that you that you followed as, as a child. But it, it remains to be seen. If he does accept a job like that, my guess is it's going to be in the negotiations that he, you know, is able to get himself some sort of leeway as far as, hey, I get some time during the season to spend with my family or, you know, I, I really need a, a trusted number two deputy that can handle some of the day-to-day stuff for me so I'm not living this job like I was in Milwaukee. And and he's got the, you know, the resources uh, financially, I would think, to kind of sit out and wait for the right opportunity. And I, I certainly think he, ha- he has the chops now and the, the resume to be able to command that if a team really wants him. So again, just kind of a, remains to be seen what will happen. I do know that he's kept a very low profile since that news conference and I literally have not seen him or spoken to him since then. Uh, we're about a week into spring training here and uh, have not seen him yet. That doesn't mean we won't see him, but definitely has not been visible in the least since he's taken his step back. So we talked about the front office leadership. We should maybe talk about the leadership in the dugout too, because Craig Council, who is the longest tenured manager in the National League with one team at least, I think third in the majors after Terry Francona and Kevin Cash, he is entering the last year of his deal. And it's fairly rare for a manager who's been somewhat successful to go into a, a walk year and not be under contract beyond that. So I know you've uh, asked and written about that recently. Does that mean anything in terms of his long-term security here? What should we read into that? I think it just means that he is right now undecided as to whether he wants to come back. This this is this is all Craig Council. This is not the Brewers not, you know, wanting him back or not feeling like he's the right guy for the job. Uh, you know, Craig Council in, in every by every measure is a perfect manager for the Brewers. This is a guy that grew up around the franchise played for the franchise, held multiple roles in the front office, and then became manager. Uh, you know, he lives in suburban Milwaukee. It, there's just there's just no possible way that there would be a better fit, in my opinion, uh, for a, a manager that, than Craig Council. That said, he has um, one son in college, playing college baseball right now, University of Minnesota. His uh, second son is a senior in high school. He's going to be playing at the University of Michigan next year. Uh, he's got a couple of daughters who are, who are growing up as well, and, and he's missed a lot of that. Um, 
you know, his, his oldest son is playing in a tournament actually in, <clears throat> in suburban Phoenix here. And, uh, Craig's going to take the morning uh, to, uh, on Monday morning here tomorrow and, and actually go in person and watch, watch his son play, which I'm sure is going to be a thrill. So I think Craig is going to, the, the best I can gauge is that he's going to, he's going to take this, the, the year, the season, kind of see how things go, see how he feels. Uh, you know, he told me that the, the, the why quote unquote as to why he does the job is still there. He still feels the motivation, but as we all know, family can be, uh, you know, that, that, that has a big sway on how we make decisions as well. So I think maybe also another factor is going to be the way the Brewers perform this year. Uh, if they struggle and they go into, you know, the, the, the mode where we're going to trade Corbin Burns, we're going to trade Brandon Woodruff and all of a sudden this becomes, you know, a little bit of a soft rebuild, maybe that helps make his decision. So again, I talked earlier about kind of all these negatives that have been swirling around the, uh, the organization. I guess you could, I don't know that you call this a negative, but it's, it's uncertainty, right? And, and you know, fans don't like that. And I, I would say the vast majority of fans like Craig Council and like the job that he's done, there's always going to be that kind of vocal minority that don't think he's a very good manager, but I, I would argue that they're incorrect. So it's just another storyline that we're going to have to keep an eye on as the season rolls along here. Well, we can turn our attention to the field. And I don't want to say that Christian Yelich is as long tenured with the organization as, as council is, but he's been around for a little while now and has been this version of himself for a little while now. He had something of a bounce back in 2022, but he hasn't approached his highs from 2018 or 19 in a while. So I'm curious, what are your expectations of Yelich this year? Uh, it's interesting. You know, every year we go in and we expect some sort of resurgence or some return to that 2018, 2019 MVP, MVP caliber player. And we just talked to Craig Council this morning about that. And, and, you know, he basically said, Hey, you know, it's, it's when you, when you sign that big contract that Christian Yelich did, you, you know, you take on the weight, you take on the responsibility of the money that you're earning. But it's also a little bit unfair to expect a guy to year after year after year be able to put up the numbers that that he did in those two years, 2018-2019. Granted, he he's gone really the other way and hasn't even come close to uh, you know matching those numbers. I think the Brewers would be thrilled, and I think Christian Yelich would be thrilled to get the Christian Yelich back of the Marlins days. You know, a guy that will hit around 300. 20 homers, 25 homers, maybe, you know, driving 80 to 90. A lot of that's going to, uh, a lot of that is going to depend on where he hits in the lineup this year. Uh, Craig Council is not, uh, he's not a fan of lineup questions any time of year, but especially early in spring. So he's not, he hasn't divulged yet whether he's going to try to hit him at lead off again or, or second or third or whatever. But, uh, I think Christian Yelich did show some flashes last year when they moved him into the leadoff spot that, he still can be a factor. You know, his on base is still very good. He's got a great eye. He takes walks. He still runs very well. The problem was they just didn't have the guys behind him that could, uh, you know, make that work and drive him in consistently. So it's going to be interesting to see how he does here early in spring. He did something a little bit different in the offseason and really just kind of took a step back from baseball. I can only imagine the the pressure that one might feel after multiple years of making such big money and, and having this, you know, this view that 
you know, you're, you're already washed up and you're stealing money and you're not, you know, performing up to what everybody expects you to perform the way everybody expects you to perform. It's, it's undoubtedly a a lot of um, pressure and a lot of mental anguish. And, and every once in a while he will kind of let onto that in in the clubhouse, you know, just, just chatting with him. It's, it's a lot for anybody to take on. So uh, I think the Brewers would be thrilled. Yelich would be thrilled again, if he could, get off to a good start this season, maybe start driving the ball a little bit more. Uh, the, the one he was, he was hitting the ball pretty hard consistently last year, but so much of that was on the ground. And that's, that was kind of the wrap on him when he was uh, playing for the Marlins before he joined the uh, launch angle revolution when he came to Milwaukee. So if he can start driving the ball a little bit more in the air with a little bit more authority, hitting gaps, uh, I think that would go a long way toward, uh, rebuilding his confidence and uh, making the fans happy that that maybe you know he's rediscovered something and and, and the brewers can start uh getting a little bit more of their, their money's worth moving ahead because there's a lot more years left on that deal this was not a bad offensive team last year but it has sometimes held the brewers back behind their excellent starting rotation so if we talk about the lineup surrounding Yelich, which is mostly the same as last year's, at least once Garrett Mitchell showed up late in the season, there are a couple of new additions. Jesse Winker, of course, who came over in the Colton Wong trade, and then William Contreras, who was quite a nifty little pickup. <laughs> so tell us about the expectations for those guys, Contreras stepping into a full-time role, Winker coming off of injury and surgery, and I guess anyone else on the team who might have some sort of uh, offensive uptake in them sure i i'll start with Contreras, and you know like, like you mentioned that was a quite quite a nifty move by the brewers being able to land him 25 years old uh under team control for several more years and um you know while his defense is kind of a, a work in progress the the bat is certainly there already and the brewers were really in desperate need of of a, a right-handed hitting power guy who they could put in the middle of the lineup because they were they were really not very good against left-handed pitching last year uh, in particular against left-handed starters so that's a good that's a good um, kind of building block for the Brewers offense and you you kind of work out from there you know you've got Jesse Winker I think is is really a question mark at this point because that neck surgery that he had in the offseason was pretty major Uh, you know he had a disc basically replaced or rebuilt in his neck. I don't want to say it's unprecedented in baseball, but it's a pretty rare uh, procedure to have. And I don't think that anybody really knows, you know, how well he's going to bounce back. He's done all the work, all the rehab. Um, you know, he's, he seems like he's in a good place right now, but we're still several five, six days away from game starting. And we don't know how that's going to hold up over the long haul. So the plan right now is going to be for Winker, uh, you know, if he's able to hold up through spring training and, he, and he's ready to go on opening day, I think you'll look at him as the the kind of the regular DH for the early portion of the season, or at least the first couple months until they feel like he has his legs under him, so to speak, and they're comfortable with where he's at with his neck. He's comfortable with where he is with his neck, and then they'll start looking at it potentially putting putting him in the outfield and, and utilizing some different lineups that way. But if he's going right, we know he's 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 murder against uh, right-handed pitching and a guy that you can kind of slot, you know, three, four, five in the lineup and feel pretty good about. 
And then building out from there, you've got, you know, guys like uh, Willie Adamas who's coming off a, a career season, uh, run production season. You've got Rowdy Telez who's coming off a, a career season in terms of uh, hitting the long ball and driving in runs. And then you've got guys like uh, Luis Urias who showed uh, a couple years ago that he has some pop. He, he did not really bounce back from an early season injury last year and um, didn't really live up to the expectations that people had for him coming into the season. I think he could be in line for uh, a, a little bit of a resurgence. And then, then you've got kind of the bottom of the lineup. You, you mentioned Garrett Mitchell before. I'll be interested to see, you know, how he looks in year two. Now, granted, he, he had a little, only a little over a month in the, in the big leagues, and mm-hmm. there were a ton of, ton of strikeouts in, in that in that small sample size, I would assume that he's still going to be a, a pretty big swing and miss player. If he does get regular playing time, the thing that I do like about him and the, and the, the facet, I think that he brings to the Brewers lineup that was, was very much needed was just uh, speed on the base paths, aggression on the base paths. He will take his walks. And um, you know, when, when he gets on, he can steal. And with the, obviously with the rules changes, the bigger bases and everything that could make him even more of a factor. So he could factor in that way. You get him and Yelich uh, getting on base, running a little bit. You get some of the big bats in the middle of the lineup swinging it well. It could be a different, uh, could, could be a different scenario. And I think that's what the Brewers are uh, kind of hoping for going into the year. Yeah, who will have a higher strikeout rate, Garrett Mitchell or Keston Hira? That could yeah, be a, yeah, it's going to be close competition. <laughs> ben, that's a perfect transition because I was just about to ask about Hira. Because Todd, I wonder if you can help us know, like, what do we make of him at this point? Because he obviously played a lot better, hit a lot better in limited playing time last year, at least compared to 2021, which was disastrous, but it was nowhere near what he did in 19 when he came up. Seemed like getting more playing time helped to kind of help him find a rhythm, but they also didn't play him all that often. So what is, what is the sort of optimal usage and deployment of Hira at this point? He's just a complete enigma. It is so it is so weird. So <laughs> well, he's I a feel guy, better that you don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the Brewers know honestly. If they if they did, they, they you know they would have found some sort of way to, to deploy him in, in a in a way that makes sense. But you have a guy who he's a right handed hitter who can't hit left handed pitching. He can't play first base, can't play second base, can't play the outfield. Is really only a DH. But the DH option that you have and, and had, by and large, were left-handed hitters. So you, you see what I'm saying? It's like he's a puzzle piece that doesn't fit in any right. of those scenarios. And, you know, he granted, he did very well against right-handed pitching. Um, you know, he, he has the power to change games. He, he has the uh, kind of the, the flair for the dramatic at times. But you can really only put him out in the field in in very limited very limited opportunities because the ball seems to find him and and he just he he's not he's not good you know it it just does not work give him credit you know he tried first base tried left field you know at least he wasn't saying hey i'm just not even going to try so he was being a team guy but you know this was a guy who came fast through the system on the strength of his bat and, you know, after that great rookie year that he had, the, you know, like pretty much like Yelich, the pandemic year, everything just kind of blew up and hasn't been able to get back on track. So he, he changed his setup in the offseason last year. And I think that helped him a little bit as far as consistency. 
still does strike out as at a, at a high rate, as you noted. But if you can do damage, the times that you are making contact, uh, you know, the teams will live with that. And I think the Brewers are in that same boat. So uh, this this is going to be a, a what I would call a make or break spring for him. They they have a bunch of guys in camp right now who um, are are better defensively, can play multiple positions defensively, uh, like the Owen Millers of the world, the Abraham Toros of the world. You know, Mike Brasso is still around. Uh, you know, you've got a guy like um, Bryce Terang who is is going to be called up at some point. So and Keston here is out of options. So there's not a lot of wiggle room for the Brewers. They're going to have to figure out one way or the other if he's worth keeping around. And if not, maybe he's a guy who, you know, toward the end of camp, you start shopping around and you got to think that some team, some, you know, somebody would maybe want to take another crack at him. And if they have an opening at DH or, you know, whatever the case may be, he may be a prime uh, change of scenery candidate. So when your rotation starts with Burns and Woodruff and Peralta and Lauer, that's a, a pretty solid start. I guess the question is, who's the fifth guy and who's beyond that? Is it just Wade Miley has a lock on the fifth starter spot? I know Aaron Ashby was just shut down with shoulder issues. So what's the depth situation? Yeah, I would have looked at it as a kind of a three-man battle between Ashby, Wade Miley, and Adrian Hauser. Uh, but now that Ashby is, has been knocked out of that competition for the time being with his shoulder issue. Uh, I think it's kind of a toss up right now between Wade Miley and Adrian Hauser. And truth be told, if you look at where they are in their careers and, you know, the money that they spent to bring Wade Miley in as a free agent, also the fact that he's left-handed, I I would tend to give the, uh, tend to tip the scales a little bit toward uh, Wade Miley uh, heading into opening day as that number five guy. Uh, Adrian Hauser had a really poor year last year. Uh, maybe some of the residual from losing his arbitration case. I don't know, but um, he also battled some injuries. But he's also a guy who, before he became a, a staple in the rotation, did have success in the bullpen and, and did did really well. He's a heavy ground ball guy, sinker guy, and was 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 somebody who could come in and pitch an inning, pitch two innings, and get you know four or five ground ball outs and and do his job on a consistent basis. So I think that while he may may not be happy in that role necessarily, I think the Brewers would feel good about having him in the bullpen and, and having him also as insurance. As we saw last year, uh, you know the the Brewers had a ton of injury problems in their in their rotation and and. When Aaron Ashby didn't pan out the way they thought, then they're you know when you're relying on 11 starts from Jason Alexander, you're in trouble. So, uh, you know they also went out and got Jansen Junk in the off season, uh, Bryce Wilson. So they have other guys in camp and and in the organization as well who are kind of right on the cusp there, and, and uh, you know will be stretched out in spring, and and guys that can step in and kind of fill the breach and and do a better job and keep the Brewers more competitive uh, than the starts last year when they didn't have their their big horses starting. I feel like we have to spend a little bit of time, at least a little bit of time on the bullpen and particularly Devin Williams, although I don't know what more you can say about Devin Williams at this point other than he's pretty superlative. So I imagine that especially with Hader's departure, he'll just be firmly implanted in that closer role. What should we expect from him this year? I think it's going to be interesting. This will be the first year that he comes in as the anointed closer, you know, from day one. It's a, it's a role that he has sought his whole career, and it's I think it's one that he's definitely going to relish. 
He started his offseason a little bit earlier because he's going to be pitching for Team USA in the World Baseball Classic. And as a result, once he gets back from that, I think the Brewers are going to taper him off a little bit, give him a little bit of rest going into the season. But, you know, he's a guy who he's a two pitch guy, as we all know. He's got that incredible uh, change up, the airbender, and, and he's got a fastball that, that plays very well. Those two pieces, hitters just have not been able to figure them out. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, his his changeup is, is one of the best we've seen in a long, long time. And uh, even though hitters know it's coming more often than not, he's still able to get guys out with it. So he's, he's a little bit, I, I think he struggled last year, not so much with closing games per se, but the trade of Josh Hader was a good friend of his, and that one-two punch at the back of games was just uh, incredible. And having filled that role as a setup guy, regular setup guy for several years behind Hader, I think it took a little bit for him to kind of get comfortable in, in that closer's role. But now that he's had you know the, the, the latter part of 2022 and now this whole offseason, the Kind of let, wrap his brain around it. I think I think he's definitely um, you know looking forward to to stepping into that role and stepping into the spotlight. And and I certainly would expect another really good year out of him. It's going to be fun to watch and see how many saves he can put up and uh, if he can actually better his numbers last year, which you know over the course of an entire season were the best of his career. You mentioned Terang as someone who's likely to debut this year, but I wonder among their other guys, particularly in the high minors, if there are other prospects who either because they're just sort of set to debut or because they'll be the first ones called upon in the event of injury that Brewers fans might expect to see this year. Yeah, the two uh, the, the, the two most likely names aside from Terang uh, are both outfielders and um, they're guys that have been on the radar for a little bit, uh, Sal Freelich and Joey Weimer two guys who could not be more uh, opposite in terms of the way they look, the way they play. You know, Sal Freelich is, uh, you know, about 5'10", uh, left-handed contact hitter. He's exactly, in my opinion, the kind of guy that the Brewers need in their lineup. A uh, guy who just figures out a way to get on base, scrapper. Uh, as time goes along, I think he'll develop a little bit more power. He's a guy who can play across the outfield, and, and he's not going to hurt you. Uh, and then you have Weimer, who is this big, strapping, 6'5", 220-pound guy who can run like the wind, has a cannon for an arm, you know, kind of a prototype right fielder, and, you know, a guy who, if everything goes right, can hit 35 homers in a year. Uh, a lot of early on in his uh, professional career, there were a lot of comps between him and him and Hunter Pence, both in, you know, physical stature and, and looks and just kind of the way they, they play the game. I think he's a little bit farther off than Freelick is. I think Freelick will be, uh, you know, depending on how the outfield shakes out, I think it, it will, Brewers fans will see Freelick in the first couple months of the season. And it's incredible the rise that he had in the minors last year. I mean, he started in high A, and he was in the discussion by the end of the year of, of getting a call-up. That's kind of unusual, of course. So, you know, th those are the two guys that really pop to the forefront, in my mind, as guys that could could make an impact. In camp, uh, on the pitching side, you've, you've got a couple of, of relievers, uh, Abner Uribe, who, who definitely needs more seasoning, but he's a guy who hits triple digits with his fastball. That always will interest people and interest teams. Uh, and then there's a, a little bit less heralded uh, right-hander by the name of Cam Robinson, who led all the minor leagues in, in saves last year with 25. Uh, his velocity has picked up. 
Um, you know, he's got a good change of pace as well. And, and a guy who got himself on the radar, he's also on the 40 man, which is, which makes a difference too, in terms of, you know, how quickly teams will call a guy up and how easy it is for them to do it. So that's two guys on the pitching side that I would mention as well. Uh, but this year, maybe more than any other in recent memory, the Brewers will be impacted by uh, a number of their higher ceiling, bigger name prospects. So in closing, how should the Brewers or how do the Brewers define a successful season for themselves in 2023 and for the fans who, as you noted, are in some cases dissatisfied with the way things have been going? What would it take to get popular opinion back on the Brewers side? As currently constructed, I, I think it would definitely be a, a major disappointment if they, if they fail to make the playoffs again. I think Wild card spot is the absolute basement of what they should be shooting for. Uh, I think a central division title is certainly within their grasp. It looks right now like it's between the Brewers and the Cardinals with a much improved Cubs team probably having a little bit of say in that as well. So uh, from a fan's perspective, of course, you know, <laughs> they should be in the World Series every year. We know that's not, that's not realistic, but this is an ownership group, and this, this was – bandied about after the hater trade last year and it's it's almost become a kind of a rallying cry for frustrated fans that this is an ownership group that wants continual continual bites of the apple as far as the postseason goes this is an ownership group that does not want to go through a lengthy teardown a la the cincinnati reds where you alienate your fan base that way and you you know suffer through five or more years of just miserable baseball you know, this is a this is a, a ownership group that wants to be as competitive as possible for as long as possible. And to that end, you've got a pitching staff that that certainly can shoulder those expectations. If the offense can uh, hold up in, its end of the bargain and not so, put so much pressure on the pitching staff like it did last year, they'll be in a much better spot. And of course, good health always helps as well. So, to me, playoffs are bust. All right. Well, you heard it here first, and you can hear it throughout the season from Todd at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You can also find him on Twitter at Todd underscore Rosiak, R-O-S-I-A-K. Todd, thanks very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Okay, we'll take one more brief break, and we'll be back in just a moment with Jordan McPherson of Miami Herald to discuss the Miami Marlins. I've been to a near, I've been to a far place over the land and the sea, but I fell in love when I saw you in Scarface and All right, we're back, and it's time to talk about the Miami Marlins with the beat writer for the Miami Marlins and the Miami Herald, Jordan McPherson. Hello, Jordan. Hello, Ben. Hello, Meg. Great to be with you guys again. How's, how's everything been on your end? Oh, pretty good for the last, uh, what, two years <laughs> since we had you on to talk about the Marlins last time, probably. So, yeah, hard to sum up in a, in a sentence, but okay. So I wanted to ask if you could settle a, a question for us. We wondered when the Marlins hired Skip Schumacher to be their new manager. His name is Skip, or at least that's what everyone calls him. And often you call a manager Skip, even if he's not named Skip. So how does one refer to Skip Schumacher or address Skip Schumacher? Is it just Skip? 
it has been just Skip, and it honestly makes it a lot easier to know that that's been the nickname that he has, and now it fits the role. So it's been made a, a very easy transition on that front. Okay. <laughs> we were wondering, because, uh, you know, sometimes you, you give someone a nickname, you use their baseball nickname or whatever, but in his case, it, it just so happens, you know, that it's the same name. So I guess you can't call him Jared. Jared Michael Schumacher would be the real name, apparently. But I don't know when anyone called him Jared last. Since we're on the subject, tell us a little bit about your early impressions of Schumacher and why the Marlins decided that he would be the guy and how the addition of Schumacher and a new coaching staff might change things from the Mattingly era. Yeah, very impressed with my first, the first week up here with Skip Schumacher and just the few interactions I've had with him from his hiring to what we saw what we when we got talking in the winter meetings to now with seeing him on the field for a week with players he brings a lot of energy he has a winning pedigree obviously someone who was run whose career was primarily through the cardinal system understands the winning culture he won the world series as a player and he was one of those guys who wasn't the big name when he was on his roster he was the one of the a bench guy, a starter, but not the big name, obviously, played with Yadier Molina, played with Adam Wainwright. He was a guy, and he understands what it takes to have to work to succeed at the big league level, and he's trying to instill that type of mindset into the Marlins clubhouse. Uh, he's brought, it's been very high energy, very positive vibes, which first week spring training is always very positive, right. <laughs> positive optimistic outlook, but he's just it brings a new sense and a new just a new aura around the clubhouse and around the organization, especially after having again Don Mattingly was the longest tenured manager in Marlins history. He was here for seven years, and they just they wanted to go in a new direction, bring someone in who could just bring a spark. And so far, it it seems like Skip is bringing that. Now it's just a matter of seeing how that happens and how it translates once camp is over, once games begin, and how he and his staff are able to work with this slightly retooled roster to try to get the Marlins to be competitive in a very competitive NL East. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that before we get into any of the individual moves or additions that they made this offseason, which is how do they understand themselves within the context of their division? Because you're right, it is an incredibly competitive division. They came into this offseason needing a lot of offense, having strong pitching. They have more offense. They have slightly less strong pitching now. So I think we can, you know, talk about some of those individual moves, but like, do they, where do they view themselves in their competitive cycle right now? Yeah, they understand that the NL East is the NL East. Obviously, three teams that made the playoffs last year, two teams with 100 wins, and then the team that didn't get to the 100-win mark made it all the way to the World Series. And all three of those teams are still the top three teams of the division. But the Marlins are also in the mindset of they know that they need to be more competitive. They need to try to find ways to contend, which for them starts with their pitching. Obviously, if they can have another strong year from the rotation and have more steady offense and find ways for their key guys to stay healthy. They feel like they can be an, a dark horse team in the NL East and the moves that they made were for more than just this year. Basically every person who they acquired throughout this offseason is under contract or under team control for more than one year. So even if they don't make the full jump and 
are able to leap over any of those top three teams. They still have all of the pieces for 2024, some for 2025 and 2026. So they are able, they're going to be able to use this as a true building block to try to get as much established this year and then also find ways to improve on it as the years progress. So let's talk about some of the moves they made. The Marlins made some trades. We will talk about those. But as for the free agent market, they were not very successful in the free agent market last offseason. Their additions uh, didn't do great for the most part. And they didn't really go big game hunting this winter. There was a lot of money spent, a lot of big free agents signed to big deals. And for the Marlins, when it comes to major league contracts for free agents, it's just Gene Segura and Johnny Cueto. So if you want to talk to us about those additions, interested in hearing why they added those two, but also whether they were in on anyone else that you know of, whether they considered spending more money than they actually did, which I guess is kind of the perennial question when it comes to the Marlins. Yeah, so with Gene Segura, he was he in addition to Luis Reisner, we're gonna talk about him later. There the emphasis for them was to add contact hitters to balance out their lineup a little bit more. Last year, when they signed Jorge Soler and Alfredo Garcia, there that was to add power to the lineup, and obviously that did not manifest in the way that the Marlins wanted. Alfredo Garcia had a down year. Jorge Soler was mired by injuries, but was on a 30 home run pace by the time he got hurt at the end of June. They were hoping to ha- that Segura and Arise they would balance out a lineup that, if healthy, has a contact power guy in Jazz Chisholm Jr. who can do a little bit of everything. Those two guys, the contact guys, table setters toward the top of the lineup, and then hope that Jorge Soler and Avcel Garcia are able to rebound and Gary Cooper is able to be a fixture in the middle of their lineup as well. Obviously, the ballpark they have that they play 81 games in every year is not hitter-friendly. So if they're able to get guys who are able to be more doubles guys, more gap, more gap-to-gap guys who can get on base and then have... RBI producers score, drive them in and let those guys who get on base use their speed to get in the scoring position after getting on base. That was sort of the mindset there. As for Cueto, that was in addition to basically, in, from my perspective, was get a veteran guy to be in your rotation and allow them the flexibility to use some of their starting pitching depth that they had to acquire more hitters. And they obviously did that by shortly after acquiring, signing Cueto, trade Pablo Lopez to Minnesota for Luis Arise. So that, that move was more of a add someone so you're not fully losing your rotation depth, your MLB ready starters, and being able to have some more flexibility to go from a strength in order to acquire, to improve on the, improve on the weakness. And that move obviously requires the shift that was mentioned of Jazz Chisholm Jr. moving to center field. I'm curious sort of what the communication was with Chisholm ahead of that decision and what your sense is of how excited he is to play out there and what the club's expectations are for him. Yeah, so from all three angles of it, from Jazz Chisholm Jr. himself to manager Skip Schumacher and general manager Kim Ang, the general consensus was Jazz came up to them shortly after the new year when the Marlins had made very minimal moves and said to them, look, if you need me to go in the center field so we can get other guys who can fill spots in the infield, I'll do it. Whatever it takes for the team to win, I'll do it. So Jazz approached them before they signed Segura and before they acquired a rise and said, if these moves make sense, 
to improve us. Let's do it. I'll go out to center field. I'll start prepping now. And he started working with uh, first base coach, outfielder coach John Jay, right from the jump after the calendar flipped January. And they're optimistic about what he can do out there. Obviously, from just the pure athlete side, he has the tools and the potential and the talent to do it. But in the same vein, he's never played in the outfield before in a professional setting. So it'll be interesting to see the adjustments, especially for a guy like Jazz, a guy who has the flair and has the affinity for wanting the big plays, to see how he balances when a ball is going towards the warning track, what he tries to do when it comes to the quote-unquote robbing a home run or how he balances a ball that's that falls in ahead of him. How much does he dive? How much does he let the ball sit in front of him to then let it settle for a single? And also just the health component of it because, again, he's coming off of knee surgery and a stress fracture in his lower back. He's had hamstring issues. So to see how he's working to make sure he can stay healthy while learning a new position, while trying to be the be basically the top hitter on this team. It's a lot of fact. There are a lot of factors that he has to deal with and work with and adjust to this spring. So that's going to be one of the main storylines that we follow all throughout camp and throughout the season. Yeah, it's really a big season for him. We talked about him being the MLB The Show cover model, maybe somewhat surprisingly, but sort of banking on him becoming a a bigger star, maybe. And he certainly could. And he took a huge step forward offensively last season before he got hurt, of course. But right now he has to handle the position switch. and, And it seems like he has the physical attributes of someone who could succeed at this conversion. But it's always kind of a risk to take your franchise quarterstone on the position player side or player you're hoping will be at least and then have him make a a mid-career transition that not that many players make and then coming off of injury as well so is there sort of any expectation for what he'll be working on offensively or is it just trying to consolidate the gains that he made last year and could he be an extension candidate yeah I think it's more of the consolidation just what when he was on the field and when he was healthy what he was doing on offense worked so if that isn't broken, why try to fix it? The emphasis right now is seeing how quickly he can adjust and get ready for center field and work on that as much as he can without letting the offensive production drop. In terms of an extension candidate, I they the Marlins haven't discussed anything on that front yet. And what I think they're trying to do is I think they want to see him for a full season to see what if he can play a full season. And again, only played 60 games last year. Only play, I think it was about 90-some the year before. If he can put together a full year and show what he can do, then I think the discussions will start. And also, remember, he's still pre-arbitration. He is under team control for four more years, so they do have time on that front before they have to really start worrying about it. I mean, they did Sandy Alcantara, they started with him right after his first, or the offseason that he was going into arbitration. So that could be a pattern that they follow, see what see what they have, and then go through everything. And then, again, I think showing his health is going to be the main factor that determines when and how quickly they decide if they're going to offer him him an extension. You brought up Alcantara. It feels silly to ask, what can a guy who was the unanimous Cy Young winner and posted uh, an ERA and a fit below three do to improve? What might we expect from him? But what might we expect from him this year? Because... You know, it wasn't like he was an unknown good pitcher from the year before, but he really did take a step forward in 2022. Correct. Yeah, the main thing on the Sandy Alcantara front is 
dealing with base runners. Uh, last year, he, if I have the numbers correctly, 24 of the 28 potential base dealers against him last year were successful in stealing bases. So if he's able to learn how to hold runners, which with the new rules between the limited pickoffs, the larger bases, all those things, that's going to play a factor for him, especially since he is a ground ball guy. If he's able to hold guys at first base and up his chances to get double play balls, that's only going to work in his favor. And then he told, he said during, uh, after his workout on Sunday that he wants to up his curveball usage. He hasn't, he didn't use it much last year. I think it was about half a percentage, percent of his pitches last year were the curveball. He wants to get that into about the 10% range to add yet another pitch on top of both of his fastballs, his changeup and his slider to give him a fifth offering in addition to add to his already very solid arsenal. So those would be the two aspects on the Sandy Alcantara front. So we should talk about Arise. So you mentioned that the Marlins wanted to upgrade their contact. Hard to do that more with one player than <laughs> with Luis Arise. Of course, you know, there are questions about his uh, ceiling defensively and, and also power-wise. So you could perhaps get too locked into the mindset of we want to up our contact and not concentrate on the fact that it would be nice to up their power and <laughs> other attributes of the offense as well. But why did they target Arise? Was it just we want to up our contact rate and how could we do that better than to get a rise and, you know, giving up Pablo Lopez for him? That's a significant sacrifice, obviously. So tell us what you know about how that deal came together and also where the Marlins see him slotting in defensively. Yeah, so a rise at this point, he's going to be playing second base. Uh, he's at second. The plan from for the rest of the infield, Garrett Cooper at first, Joey Wendell at shortstop, and Gene Segura at third base. So the defense, especially the infield defense, is going to be very interesting to watch and see how these guys who aren't necessarily playing at their natural positions outside of Cooper at first will play out. But in terms of the offensive side for Luis Arise, again, like you mentioned, he's a table setter. He'll be able to be a guy who gets on base, obviously the very, very, very low strikeout rate. And that is something the Marlins need because a lot of their guys who they've acquired over the past few years have either been have been feast or famine. You're either going to see a lot of success or you're going to see a lot of failure. With Arise and even with Segura, you're minimizing that. You may not be getting as much of the high-end ceiling, but the floors of the, of a lot of their guys now are going to be are a lot higher. So they're minimizing the risk while also minimizing the potential reward with those guys. And they're hoping that the power comes from Soler, Avcel Garcia, Jazz, Garrett Cooper, the guys who they have where... The results may not have been there, but the potential is there. And hoping that with these contact hitters in Segura and Arise gives them a little more protection in the lineup as they work through work through the exact lineups and everything. And on the Pablo Lopez front, just to quickly touch on that, Lopez obviously had a fantastic year last year, and that's what helped them with his trade value. That obviously made his trade value soar. But in the big picture, in the grand scheme of things, Pablo Lopez most likely was not going to be part of this top five, their starting five rotation in the long term. Obviously, you have Sandy Alcantara, Edward Cabrera, uh, Tre- uh, Jesus Lazaro took a big jump last year. They're still optimistic about uh, Trevor Rogers having a bounce back year. Yuri Perez, their top pitching prospect, a uh, top 15 consensus, consensus prospect. And all baseball is close to his debut. Uh, Max Meyer once comes off Tommy John surgery. Cueto for the moment. They have enough, they had enough arms and they also understood that Pablo Lopez before last season, he had the history with the shoulder that had limited his time through 
both uh, 2018, 2019, and 2021 seasons. So there was no guarantee that Lopez would have another full healthy season. So while his stock was as high as it was, they decided to send him off and use his use his value to, again, acquire a need that they needed in Luis Arise. The other big trade that the Marlins made this offseason was actually to send a hitter away, which tells you perhaps all you need to know about how they were assessing J.J. Blade. But I want to talk about the Blade trade. When did things start to sour for him within the organization? And then on the flip side of that, you know, we we've talked about the Marlins sort of vaunted pitching depth, which is interesting because that did not really extend to the bullpen. (laughs) And I'm curious if there is, you know, uh, surely there is a need for AJ Puck in the bullpen, but is there any path where they actually entertain the idea of him starting again? Yeah. So at the, at the moment, AJ Puck is going to be in the bullpen, whether it's, again, their roles for the bullpen guys right now are fluid because they have, they brought in a few guys between Puck himself, uh, Matt Barnes, who they acquired in the trade with, with Boston for Richard Blyer, uh, JT Chargois, who they got from the Rays in November, plus the return of Tanner Scott and Dylan Floro, who were the main two who had the closer role last season, and Stephen Okert, who was a seventh, eighth inning guy. So they have six guys who they're looking at for the high leverage roles, and Puck at this point is going to be in the pen if health or whatnot predicated it and injuries happen they could potentially they have an avenue where they could stretch him out to be a starter or but at this point he's going to be a late inning guy potentially could be a one plus guy in the bullpen which they're trying to figure that that stuff out too because they don't really have a true long man as their options in the bullpen but they have a lot of guys who can do one to two innings so they're figuring that stuff out but with Bladey that one, honestly, when the trade happened last weekend, it caught me by surprise just because I didn't think they would they would send him off or give up on him, I guess would be the phrase, after just one season, just two months of giving him time in the big leagues. But when you look at where their outfielders stand at this point, Avisel Garcia, Jazz in right, Jazz in center, Brian De La Cruz, Jesus Sanchez, and Jorge Soler, all options as well. You already have five guys who are expected to be on the big league roster to play outfield. You all, you have John Birdie who could play in the outfield as well. They have a couple other guys in Peyton Burdick who debuted last year, Harar and Carnacion who debuted last year, who are other options. So it's sort of, I feel like, the same with what they did with Pablo, but to a lesser extent. They don't know what J.J. Blade's value is going to be, especially since it was unlikely he was going to crack the big league roster. So if you're able to trade him for a reliever, and a quality pitcher in AJ Puck, who both, who similar to Blade, he's under team control for five years. So they have a guy who is going to help them now and be with them, be able to be with them long term. That was more of a looking in the moment, looking at how they can improve the present, especially since they were uncertain about exactly where Blade was going to fit in, given the current state of what they have outfielder wise at the MLB level. You used the word sore when you were talking about Pablo Lopez's trade value, and you can't use the word sore during a Marlins preview without making Scott Stapp play in my head. I didn't (laughs) even think about that. Oh, my goodness. Thanks for that. (laughs) Marlins Marlins will sore has been on repeat in my head since that answer, but I'm going to try to put that out of my head and ask about the rest of the outfield picture. We talked about Jazz, but... 
I wanted to ask about the other guys because Brian De La Cruz, I think, has been kind of a popular breakout pick by some people this spring. So make the case, maybe, if you agree with that possibility. And then the other guys out there, you know, it's Soler, it's Jesus Sanchez, it's uh, Garcia. I guess Soler's more of a DH at this point. But those guys were kind of the core of the, the disappointing Marlins bats last year. So what are the expectations for possible bounce backs from that trio? Yeah, so Avisel Garcia is in, as of right now, is penciled in for right. Jazz is penciled in for center. Jorge Soler, primarily, it looks like he's going to be the DH. They want to try to keep him as healthy as possible. Again, he and Jazz both went down about the same time last year. I think it was a day or two apart from each other in late June. And their offense went from being about middle of the road at that point across all of MLB, which with that starting pitching staff that they had, that's really what they needed. And it went from middle of the road, average about four and a half runs a game to averaging, I think it was 2.2 or 2.3 runs per game over the final three months of the season, which went from being good enough for the starting pitching staff to being dead last in baseball over the final stretch without Jazz and Solaire. Mm -hmm. So if they can keep Solaire healthy, they can keep Jazz healthy. Those are the two ideals. Left field, Brian De La Cruz, I would agree. I I've been high on him since he made his debut when the when the Marlins acquired him from Houston in the Yimmy Garcia trade back in uh, 2021. I liked his makeup. I liked again he was back to ball skills. He had the look that those two months that he was up there in 2021. You saw he regressed a good bit in 2022 and then came back strong at the very end. I believe if I remember correctly, he led the Marlins in home runs from the time he got called back up toward at the end of the season through the end of the season. It's just a matter of how can he put that together over the course of a full season. And maybe it's him platooning with Jesus Sanchez. Again, De La Cruz is a righty. Jesus Sanchez is a lefty. They have their bench spots they need to fill. They need to figure that out. And if both and both of them are more profile for the corner outfields than center. So if they're at the more defensively comfortable position and potentially in a platoon spot that could help both him and Jesus Sanchez sort of become those guys that the Marlins were hoping they could be with, again, they both have, they both have power. They both have contact in their, in their swings and they would be playing in the more defensively correct position for them. If they're in, if they're in left compared to the two of them playing center, like they did last year, which was basically out of necessity when the Marlins didn't acquire center fielder in the off season before 2021. So Right now, I would think De La Cruz probably has a slight edge on Jesus Sanchez if it's one one over the other. But right now, I think the platoon is probably going to be the most logical fit for the Marlins there. When I looked back at our top prospect list for Miami last year, you won't be surprised to know that a lot of the top slots are occupied by pitchers. We can talk about some of them in a minute. But, you know, when you think about the guys who went down with injury last year, some of their attempts to reinforce the lineup this year. Among the position players they have in the minors, are there any who strike you as likely to play a big league role at some point this year? Yeah, I would say it's two guys who they acquired in this offseason. Jacob Amaya, who they got from the Dodgers in the Miguel Rojas trade, and Xavier Edwards, who they got from the Rays in in addition to JT Chargois back in November. Those two were both in AAA last year. Uh, Amaya is defensively looking like he can hold hold his own at shortstop. Edwards is a little bit more play some second, play some short, play some third. He can move around and fill one of those infield spots. Those would be the top two that I'm keeping my eye on. And then also in the infield, Jordan Groshans, who 
they got from in the trade with the Blue Jays last uh, at the trade deadline for Anthony Bass and Zach Pop. He debuted last year, played he played I think it was about two weeks the final two weeks of the season was all at third base. He would likely stay at third base if he came up. And those would be the three in terms of infielders. Outfield, I think they have enough options between the guys who they have. If one of the corner outfielders goes down, if let's just say Avisel Garcia gets hurt, they can move one of De La Cruz or Sanchez to right field. Soler could play left field if needed. And then uh, Peyton Burdick, I think, will be the first call from the minor leagues. And then Gerard Encarnacion right after him. So they have a little bit more depth there. All of those guys, with the exception of Amaya and Edwards, have played the big league level. So the Marlins have an understanding of what they can do, what their strengths, what their weaknesses are. Granted, it was all small sample size about, I think none of them have more than two months, but it was enough for them to start working with them this offseason to try to get them ready for if they have those scenarios where they need it. Talk about two starting pitchers who went in different directions in 2022. Another popular breakout pick this year is Jesus Lizardo, but I think you could argue that he already broke out, certainly relative to his 2021. It's just a question of durability with him, as it always is. So he was the good news. The bad news last season was Trevor Rogers, who regressed hard from his breakout in 2021. So Give us the outlook for each of those guys. Is uh, one going to head up, the other head down, or can they both be successful? Yeah, I think, again, Jesus Lazardo is the one that, outside of Sandy Alcantara, is the one I'm keeping my eye on the most out of the Marlins' current projected rotation. Just, you have a lefty like him, again, 120 strikeouts in 103rd innings last year, made 18 starts, obviously missed a lot of time early with that I believe it was the four, you know, with the forearm injury, he missed about two months there. But once he came back, he just every time he was on the mound, he looked good. And I knew that the Marlins, and again for me, it's just a matter of him getting to work with Mel Steinmeier Jr. That first season when they acquired him in the Starling Marte trade in 2021, the Marlins knew that that stretch that he was with them to close out the season probably wasn't going to be pretty. But they wanted him to make all of his starts with the Marlins after that trade up at the big league level. So Mel Steinmeier Jr. could get a close eye on him throughout those entire two months. So that way they could have an offseason plan and they can be they could have been communicating and working throughout those two months compared to say, let him go to AAA, be a starter the full time, and then start everything fresh in 2022. And I feel like it worked out. I mean, he went from a 6-4-4 ERA in the 12 starts he made after getting acquired in 2021 at the trade deadline to a 3-3-2 last year in the 18 starts he made. Strikeouts were up, walks were down, and he started to figure everything out with his secondary pitches. That was, again, he needed those secondary pitches to work in order to have his fastball play better. His fastball got hit really hard in 2021. He improved on his metrics with that pitch because of the slider and the changeup and being able to use those pitches to better sequence his fastball. As for Trevor Rogers, it was really rough to watch him last year, and emotionally, it hit him really hard midseason. I think it was the game against when he was at the Reds, where I think it was like a third or fourth consecutive bad outing, and he was just like, I don't know what's going wrong. I don't know what what I can do. Every time I try to fix something, it just seems like I can get this thing to work, and then something I was working well completely regressed. And he spent did a lot of introspection this offseason. Uh, he feels more comfortable now. When we talked with him uh, earlier this week, when at the start of camp, 
he came in looking in better shape. He worked, he went to a facility in Tampa to, to get basically an overall diagnosis of his body of where his strengths and weaknesses are in. Found out that there were things going on with his hip that potentially was impacting his pitching. So he's been working on that for the last about month and a half or so. He's actually trying to add a two seam to go into his repertoire as well to go with the four seam fastball, the changeup, which has been one of the top pitches and the slider that he began developing last year. So he's trying to add a fourth pitch to his mix as well to also not be as recognizable or as easy to decipher with his pitches and the sequencing because when the slider didn't work last year, he was basically a fastball changeup starter, which if you have two pitches in the big leagues, we all know how that's going to work out. So if he's able to get a third quality pitch, whether it's the two seam or the slider to work this year, I feel like that will help him with the confidence and being able to be better on the mound in terms of how he attacks hitters. I want to talk about two injured guys, one of whom you've you've already brought up, which is Max Meyer, to see sort of what the anticipated timeline for a potential 2023 return would be for him from Tommy John. And then also asked where Sixto Sanchez is in his recovery. He obviously had a number of injuries over the last couple of years that have kept him off uh, the mound in games. Where is he at in a potential rehab and what might we see from him in, in 2023? Yeah, so Max Meyer just started playing catch about a couple weeks ago. He's had three or four different sessions where he's light tossing, nothing major. But it's very unlikely, I would think, that he would be pitching in the big league level in 2023. I'm trying to just going off the timeline from last year when Jake Either, another one of their top prospects, he had Tommy, he ended up having to have Tommy John surgery and it happened about the, he underwent about the same time that Max Meyer did. And he ended up throwing off the mound, I think it was, uh, on backfield about a month or two, with a month or two left in the minor league season. The Marlins are going to be cautious with Max Meyer. They still feel like he's one of their top guys, whether it is in the rotation or as a potential late-inning guy, as a, as a late-inning reliever. They're still figuring out exactly where he fits, but they know that he is one of their top guys, especially... Again, the fastball hits upper 90s. The slider is a very good swing and miss pitch. So they want to make sure that he is completely ready when they bring him back. And with Sixto Sanchez, he's already thrown about a half dozen bullpens over the course of the last couple weeks before getting to Jupiter for spring training. He's dropped about 45 pounds, which he hopes will help lessen the burden on his shoulder, which has been the main issue for him these last two years. Between again, since again, we haven't seen him in an actual game, excluding a couple spring training games since the playoff that playoff series against the yeah. Braves in 2020. Yeah. So, the from what uh, pitching coach Mel Steinmeier Jr. told me uh, at the start of camp that they anticipate Sixto being back pitching in games. Obviously, I would at some point this year. Obviously, my obviously he'll start at the minor league level to make sure he's built up, he's confident, and that there are no hiccups, no setbacks with him, but they are envisioning him at some point making it back to back to the mound, hopefully with the big league club. And if he's able to make it to the big, big league club, he's could potentially be a very important X factor for this team. Because again, it just adds yet another talented arm to this, to this team. They're working him as a starter. They're prepping him to be a starter, but they have had conversations with him, him similar to what their thought process with Max Meyer he could potentially be a, a late-inning guy if they could try to move him to closer if they feel like his arm can rebound fast enough 
to be able to pitch the back-to-back days in the shorter doses. That's still another thing to, that they have to watch because they were doing all of their the prep work within the last two years at, on a starter's routine, a starter's rotation, and he was still having hiccups with that, with having the time off between his work sessions. So they have, again, they're going to be cautious with him, but they're optimistic that he will be able to get, to the, get back on the mound at some point this season. And speaking of pitchers who may arrive at some point this season, you just wrote a story about Yuri Perez and his uh, being mentored by Sandy Alcantara. So get us hyped for Yuri's arrival whenever that may be. Yeah, Yuri, I've seen him. I got to see him pitch, I think, three times total over the last two years. And each time I watched him, I was blown away. I mean, when you look at him, he's 19 years old. He doesn't turn 20 until, I think, April 15th, I believe is his birthday. And he was solid in double A last year. He's 6'8", 220 pounds, one of the few guys who I've seen who, when standing next to Sandy Alcantara, makes Sandy Alcantara look small. And he has a similar repertoire to Sandy. He has fastball hits the upper 90s. He has a changeup that I believe I saw one of the scouting reports he had. I believe it was like a 50 or 60% swing and miss rate with the changeup last year, pitching all in, all the entire season in double A. He has a slider that he's working on that he's trying to tighten up a little bit. And he has a curveball, and he has a curveball that's a very, that's been a good breaking pitch for him as well. So he has a four pitch mix. He's not even 20 years old yet. And he's looking like he'll get to the big league at some point this year. He wants to be in the big leagues for opening day. I just, with the way that they're, with the options they have in terms of their starting pitching, I don't see that happening, but I feel like at some point down the road this season, we're going to see Yuri Perez make his debut. And yeah, he's from the way I, the way I best like describe is Sandy Alcantara when I talked with him the other day and asked him what it's like watching Yuri at 19. Sandy goes, I was nowhere near this level when I was 19. I was in high A. I was a decent prospect. I was throwing hard, but I wasn't throwing like that. I wasn't throwing the way that he's doing it. I wasn't as mature with understanding my pitch mix and what I need to do with which batters at which time as Yuri is now. And then now with Yuri basically being under Sandy and Sandy taking him under his wing, you're seeing the dynamic of Yuri now understanding what what he has to do between starts to be ready and be more mature on that front to be ready to go when his name's called. So to wrap up, what would constitute a successful season for the Marlins in 2023 at the big league level and beyond? I would say for the for 2023, and it's going back to what they've been trying to say every year and they've been uns- unsuccessful, I, they, they need to be competitive. I don't necessarily think they need to make the playoffs this year, but I feel like they need to be in the hunt. Because, I mean, you look at this, the division, they could go, they could get 85 wins, have their first winning record in a, in a full season and goodness knows how long, and still finish fourth because of just how how stacked the Mets, the Phillies, and the Braves are. But if they're able to be in that 500 cups, cusp, hopefully above it, and say, look, we're here, and with the way the roster is set up, basically every main guy they have, whether it's guys who they have been working with for years or guys they acquired this offseason, basically all of their main guys are under control beyond this year. So if they're able to show what they're able to do this year and be in the fight and then continue to build on the group that they've already assembled. That basically gives them that stepping stone that they were hoping to have earlier in the Bruce Sherman ownership era and finally show the optimism. Whether it happens, that's obviously still to be determined, 
whether Jazz works on center will help, and that helps them. That's to be determined. But they have the pieces there. If a few thing, if a few dominoes fall in their direction, they have the potential to finally start turning the corner. It's just a matter of turning that potential into the actual results. Well, you can find out whether they succeed in doing that by following Jordan's coverage all season long at the Miami Herald. You can also find Jordan McPherson on Twitter at J underscore McPherson 1126. Jordan, thanks again. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks so much, Meg. Always great chatting with you both. All right, I'm going to give you a pass blast here. It's just me. We recorded early this week, so we didn't yet have the pass blast from our pass blast consultant when I was recording with Meg. This pass blast comes from 1971 and from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And we're back to the late eccentric ex-A's owner, Charlie Finley. This time, David writes, Finley is arguing balls and strikes. He's moved on from gold bases at this point. In 1971, Charlie Finley once again again brought a proposed rule change to Major League Baseball. On March 16, 1971, Finley's Oakland A's played Cleveland in a spring training game featuring the experimental rule, a count with three balls and three strikes. The plan clearly did not go well, as a UPI article reporting on the story ran with the headline, Baseball's Experiment Doomed for Oblivion. Finley hoped that the new count would speed the game up, but in practice the rule had the exact opposite effect, leading to an increased number of walks and what was referred to as tedious games of pitch and catch. During the trial run, the two teams produced 23 total walks in a game won 10-7 by Cleveland. As another failed attempt in baseball's long history of trying to speed up the game, Finley abandoned this idea shortly thereafter. We get this sort of question or suggestion sometimes too, just changing the number of balls or strikes. And there might be better ways you could do it, but I prefer to try to fix things within the current system of four balls and three strikes. And Finley, of course, supported a pitch clock too, so he was ahead of his time in trying to speed things along. Also, I have a second pass blast for you here. This is one I came up with, and really I probably should have done it in episode 1970, but it still applies to 1971. One of the members of our Facebook group recently posted a thread and said the MLB logo before the 1969 batter logo that is still in use today and this logo which i had never seen before is sort of a flag with a baseball on it made of negative space so there's white and there's blue and red on the flag and then underneath that emblem it just says baseball with a lowercase b and i'd never seen this logo before i didn't know that there was an mlb logo before the famous batter icon and i looked up this logo and i found it on sportslogos.net which is a wonderful website run by chris creamer it does what it says on the tin. It just hosts a ton of sports logos. And sportslogos.net has this also listed as an MLB logo that was in use from 1960 to 1975. But there was no other info on it there, and I couldn't find anything just doing a cursory search, so I got curious and did a deeper dive. And it turns out that that listing isn't quite right. It wasn't in use from 1960 to 75. In fact, that was about a decade early. This logo came into use in 1970, and it was an initiative of Bowie Kuhn, the then commissioner, reading from an article in July 1970, headline Baseball Consolidated Under Unifying Symbol. For the first time since organized baseball was consolidated under the leadership of a commissioner, it has a unifying symbol called a banner mark, which can be used by amateurs and professionals from Little League to the majors. Focus of the new visual identity program is the banner mark symbol, themed to the action and excitement of the game. It is believed to be the first such integrated graphics program for a national sport. Baseball's new symbol is the work of the industrial design firm of DeMartin, Morona, and Associates, New York. Quote, banner mark abstractly suggests a flag spiraling out of a baseball, 
The red, white, and blue color scheme reflects the sport's national origin, the designers noted. Our objective was to provide a universal emblem for everyone connected with the game, from fans and spectators to those in the Cooperstown Hall of Fame. So it says baseball on the logo because it was intended to be a logo just for all of baseball. Any kind of baseball, anywhere, any level. And it's delightfully 70s looking. It actually kind of resembles the famous Pepsi logo, although it looks most like the version of the Pepsi logo that came in in 1973, a few years after this MLB banner mark. And here's a story from August 1970. It all started in March when Commissioner Kuhn asked DeMartin Morona and Associates, DeMartin's firm, Ed DeMartin was the designer of Larchmont, to design a symbol that would identify baseball wherever it is played, from Little League to the majors and in every country. His firm was chosen for the job because they had recently completed an image campaign for the Philadelphia Phillies, which included uniforms and the stadium color scheme. The banner mark gives baseball a flag of its own, a banner to display Play proudly over the international world of baseball, announced Commissioner Kuhn. For the first time in baseball's 100-year history, it can have a visual identity, Mr. DeMartin noted. He suggests that the banner mark might become the symbol for the championship of baseball. In the past, the World Series winner has merely flown a flag that says World Champion over its stadium. And it was first used that year, 1970, on a new trophy presented to Henry Aaron as the top vote-getter in that year's All-Star fan poll. It was also on the trophy presented to the most valuable player of the All-Star game. I emailed Todd Radom, the famous sports logo designer and authority who has designed some all-star game logos himself, and he said, a favorite of Bowie Kuhn, it appeared on a range of official correspondence, awards, and ceremonial distributed trinkets such as cufflinks and tie bars. Peter Uberoth cut it loose as soon as he was installed as commissioner, which was in early 1984. But they must have already designed or manufactured the 1984 all-star game MVP trophy by then, because the award that Gary Carter received after that all-star game included the banner mark at the top probably for the final time so there you have it it was not actually an mlb logo it was intended to be a logo for all of baseball it was a Bowie Kuhn hobby horse that didn't really catch on seemingly anywhere else or with anyone else. But it was kind of an early effort, I suppose, to unify all of baseball under an MLP initiative in a less heavy-handed way than Rob Manfred typically operates. There was also a 1976 National League Centennial logo that looked sort of similar, designed by Dick Perez, also had a, a flag and those kind of colors on it. But it did not predate the famous batter logo. It was not 1960 to 75, it was 19. 70 to 84 or 85 so now you know maybe we should bring back the banner mark it's kind of cool and quirky i'll link to a bunch of clippings and info on that if you want to see the banner mark i should note that on the sports logo site there's one that doesn't have the text that just says baseball on the bottom and then there's one that has it in blue and an uneven kind of handwritten looking font that isn't quite right either the official one as i saw it was black text and more even looking but still lowercase b All right, a few follow-ups for you here. One of the hazards of the team preview series is that sometimes after we preview a team, it will make a move. That seems to be happening less this time around, just because teams made so many of their moves early in the offseason. But occasionally we will talk about a problem spot, and we'll say, what is Team X going to do here? Are they going to go get someone? And then after we do the preview, they go get someone. So case in point, last week we talked about the fact that the Texas Rangers left fielders projected to be worse than any other team's left fielders, and 
confirmed that the White Sox second baseman projected to be worse than any other second baseman. So since we did those previews, the Rangers signed Robbie Grossman to play some left field, and the White Sox signed Elvis Andrews to come back and play some second. So problem solved, right? Weak point strengthened? Well, yes, sort of, except what we said on the previews is still true. Even with Grossman, the Rangers have the worst collection of left fielders, according to the Fangraphs depth charge projections, and the White Sox still have the worst projected second baseman. It's a lot closer than it was, though. They're only like a tenth of a win behind the 29th best projected team. So that's progress. We also talked last week about the Mariners and what they might do when they retire 51 for Ichiro. Would they also make that applicable to Randy Johnson, who wore 51 with the Mariners? And we were sort of skeptical that they would. Some people wrote in to us about that. Now, we weren't skeptical about it because we were saying that they couldn't retire the number for multiple players because that has been done. In 1972, the Yankees retired number eight for Yogi Berra and the aforementioned Bill Dickey. In 1997, the Expos retired number 10 for Andre Dawson, having already retired it for Rusty Staub in 1993. And then in 2009, the Cubs retired 31 for Fergie Jenkins and Greg Maddox. And Maddox isn't such a bad comp for Randy Johnson, right? In that he started with that team and then went on to another team where he had even greater success and is associated with that franchise perhaps even more closely. So the Mariners absolutely could retire 51 for both of those players, and I think they should. It just doesn't seem like they've given any indication that they will do that, and when he was asked about it in 2018, Randy Johnson said when Ichiro retires, the Mariners will retire 51, and that'll be Ichiro's number. He went on to say that he had heard nothing about the Mariners retiring it for him, which of course could have changed in the intervening years. But he did already go into the hall as a Diamondback, and he's already in the Mariners Hall of Fame. I'm not a Mariners fan, but I'd be in favor of a double retirement. Lastly, just following up on John Angelos doing a rare address to the media and fumbling it, John Henry of the Red Sox, who we mentioned because he is on the new Economic Reform Committee, he sort of did the same thing, except he's not making himself available to the press in person. He just conducted some email interviews with a couple of outlets, including The Athletic, and he tried to argue that the fans are getting it all wrong and the Red Sox really do spend, which of course they do relative to some teams, and that they haven't cheaped out, but they also won't spend Steve Cohen money. Maybe the most amusing part was where he protested too much about being booed. Jen McCaffrey, who was conducting the Q&A, said the booing at Winter Weekend was hard to ignore. Did you recognize that that level of frustration existed from some in the fan base and does it motivate you to do anything differently? And Henry responded, again via email, so he had time to construct this response. There is a false narrative surrounding the club. It really took hold in 2022. There were even false reports of booing at Fenway Park during the Winter Classic. I think those factors in losing Xander to San Diego were the biggest factors. Those are the fans you would believe are the least likely to try to shout us down, but it happened. Did anyone report the standing ovation at the end? So there he's talking about the winter weekend event where Red Sox brass got booed and the boos were then edited out of the Nesson rebroadcast. But the winter classic hockey game at Fenway Park, it was widely reported that Henry was booed. I saw a video of some heckling. I didn't see a video of the booing, but I believe that it happened given how many people people reported it, and he's saying those were false reports, which is kind of amusing because last month when the Red Sox signed Raphael Devers to their extension and held a press conference, which Henry was not at, team chairman Tom Werner was, and he rejected the idea that the booing was what prompted the Red Sox to sign Devers, because those negotiations were already in progress, but he didn't deny that the booing occurred, and he even said, by the way, owners get booed and that's part of the deal. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. So maybe Werner should talk to Henry about the booing. I don't think owners are dissembling or blundering any more than they ever did, but I think fans and media 
media members have gotten more skeptical and more likely to interrogate them and hold them to account, which could be why some of them have all but stopped talking to the press and the public, which in the cases of Angelos and Henry might not be a bad idea. Also, Ken Rosenthal wrote a column about Corbin Burns and arbitration. It's a broader look at the way arbitration went down this winter, which was not in the favor of the players. They won six cases and lost 13, which is the worst they've done in a normal arbitration year in about a decade. And Ken ran through the reasons why, but it sounds like this is contributing further to tensions between players and owners that could again come to a head after the CBA expires. And there is some sentiment in favor of doing away with the arbitration system and replacing it with some sort of set system where players would get paid automatically based on stats, which was something that was floated during the recent round of bargaining and seems like something that the players will not go for. Although Bo Bichette, who recently avoided arbitration in a hearing by signing an extension with the Blue Jays that bought out his remaining arb years, he called arbitration an incredibly flawed process, one that isn't very good for the game, and he added, there's no reason to pit owners and executives against players, just no reason. Well, maybe there's a better way to do it, but on the whole, I think arbitration has helped players, and the reason to pit owners and executives against players, in some way at least, is that it's your typical labor versus management relationship. Owners and executives want to pay players less. Players want to make more. It's inherently adversarial to some degree. But your relationship with this podcast is not adversarial. In fact, it could be the opposite of that. You can bestow funds upon us, and you can do that by visiting patreon.com slash effectively wild and signing up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks, as the following five listeners have already done. Penelope Maddie, Oz Jensen, Devon Brennan, David Harris, and Tim Whitehead. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon supporters, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free Fancrafts memberships, lots of other goodies. Please check out the offerings at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can also catch our eyes by messaging us through the Patreon site. If not, you can email us at podcast.fancrafts.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will have another preview pod at the end of the week. We'll be covering the Phillies and the Orioles, the Middletons and the Angeloses. Quite a contrast there. But we'll have another non-preview pod for you before then. Talk to you soon.